Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Really fun conversation today. Robert Meyer Burnett is back, the director of Free Enterprise, the director of a lot of DVD special features for things like the Blu-rays of Star Trek The Next Generation, the X-Men movies, the Lord of the Ring films, Superman Returns. Currently among the many projects Robert is doing, he is part of the Collider video team, and he reviews movies, and he talks about movie and television news, and uh, he is also one of the co-hosts with uh, Jason Inman and Ashley Robertson and a lot of others, uh, reviewing the Star Trek Discovery episodes. And I love Robert's take on Star Trek. Uh, I feel like a checkers player compared to his chess master level of knowledge about the Star Trek franchise. As Discovery just wrapped up its uh, mid-season finale and it's going away until January for the final six episodes, it's a good chance to kind of catch up, see where the show is. I know it has a lot of fans. I would say that I like a lot of it as far as, you know, the basics, and I look forward to watching it each week. But I can't deny that uh, as a longtime hardcore Trek fan, uh, it feels like the rules have just been thrown away. And uh, much like the J.J. Abrams films, they're kind of rewriting things and dumbing Trek down. And, and you know something? In the case of the J.J. movie, because it's a parallel universe, you can get away with making these small little changes. But uh, as we know, the Star Trek Discovery people keep stressing that this is set in the Prime Universe, the William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy Enterprise Universe. And uh, maybe there's a big surprise that's coming at the end of the show that will make all these decisions make sense. But I'm seeing a lot of little things that uh, were just established canon. And again, I think Robert really puts it well when he says everyone who has written novels, comics, uh, subsequent short stories, essays about the thing, they all stay within the rules. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, we there were, you know, things that people hated about the Star Wars prequels because they seemed to fly in the face of what we were told in Episodes 4, 5, and 6. And uh, I feel the same way about uh, Discovery compared to uh, the canon that's been established over these 51 years. So uh, you'll forgive me and Rob, but... Uh, Again, this this show fascinates me and has me watching, but has me shaking my fist as much as it does enjoying some basic things as well that it brings. So enjoy this uh, lengthy conversation with Rob Meyer Burnett on today's Word Balloon. Uh, we'll get right to it. You know, uh, thank you, League of Word Balloon listeners, for your continued support um, through Patreon. A couple new people this week. If uh, you'd like to subscribe to Word Balloon, if you enjoy Word Balloon, if it helps you enjoy uh, the geek culture in the interviews that I bring. I mean, I think this is an audio magazine and I do my best to not just give you four episodes a month, but sometimes a lot more. And I think November is another example of that. Um, and uh, I hope you enjoy it because, it, you know, a lot of times these conversations go beyond what you might read in an article, what you might even see on a convention panel, because usually these interviews are even longer than those. If you like Word Balloon and want to subscribe and help the cause, you can go to wordballoon.com, click on the Patreon ad there, or go to patreon.com slash wordballoon. And uh, like I always say, you think it's worth a comic book a month? If you do, I appreciate the uh, thoughts and uh, support from the League of Word Balloon listeners. Without further ado, let's get into our conversation with Rob Meyer Burnett. Um, You know, it's funny to warm up. Sometimes, you know, we just talk a little bit. And Rob just started on this great jag about uh, the show, and also just uh, reviewing in, uh, I think, culture right now compared to, I don't know, maybe previous print 
uh, eras of you know newspapers and magazines and. Uh, but I, I really liked where he was going, so we're like, "Oh, geez, we're already in conversation about this stuff. Let's let's make sure it's part of the po- podcast." So uh, we pick it up in mid conversation with Rod Meyer Burnett on today's Word Balloon. You know, doing these Star Trek Discovery reviews has been really interesting. The feedback, because Cause, yeah, I haven't really been paying attention to the comments section in YouTube. Right? Oh, they on. they hate me. <laughs> and and and. You know, it's very interesting to be online, and I find it interesting that the place that I'm most hated is in a Star Trek review forum, where, you know, when we were writing reviews of Star Trek Voyager and Sci-Fi Universe in the Mm mid-90s and talking about how much we hated it, you know, everybody's like, yeah, Voyager sucks. (laughs) And now now it's like you've got these – what I find really interesting is there's, there's no critical acumen brought to bear anymore and i i think it's because the younger audience doesn't understand like that article that you read critical thinking uh, yes there, there is yes. no critical thinking anymore yep. and it, it's yep. so weird to me it's like how do you judge star trek in a vacuum there's Great. 51 years of star trek you would never nobody nobody would ever think to change i mean uh, uh, it's funny because i tell star wars fans what if they change the Millennium Falcon? How would you feel about that? Right. And everyone's like, well, they can't change the Millennium Falcon. I'm like, well, why not? Well, you can't do that. I'm like, well, that's how I feel about Star Trek. Sure. You know, and, and it's interesting. I've always said that Star Trek is a, a period piece about the future. Yes. You know, it's about a future that, that doesn't exist, but it's it's been documented incredibly well. Of course. And we know what it looks like. And it's like when you watch a show like The Crown, I love that which show, by the way. deals with World War II, it's a, it's a historical period piece. Right. Now, it's all about the characters, and they're telling us stories we didn't know. Right. But the milieu is familiar. Of course. Like, we understand. And that's what Star Trek should be. Right. Churchill isn't suddenly the president of the United States because right. we say so on this TV show. And just go along with us. No, I'm with you, man. And, you know, and that's and that we should probably record all this, I guess. Oh no, it's it'll stay on. That's fine. And uh, yeah, I was going to say uh, rather than keep it in the locker room, and it sounds like this is all can all be obviously our beginning. So if you want, we can just dive in. And Rob Burnett, we've already started talking. So welcome to Word Balloon. Oh well, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm um, always happy. It's to always have you, back. you know, I I I think your podcast, as far as genre or talking about, I know comics. But all kinds of pop culture, your podcast has been – I've been on twice before, I think. At least twice, um, if not three times. But yeah, man, I'm always happy to have you back. Go on. Yeah, it's <laughs> one of my favorite podcasts to do because it's oh, it's, it's obviously we, we, we do some deep diving and there's a chance to get into some the real meat of the matter, which is fleeting in online circles these days. Yeah, I, you know, I, I understand, Rob, and I, and I know on the Collider – Trek uh, review shows, you've referred to yourself as grumpy old man, and I sometimes self-check myself as well compared to the younger audience, and I, I don't know. I, I, I have a feeling we're just hearing a vocal audience that, you know, is happy to express online, you know, all the things that on the surface I would agree with. Hey, awesome to have a more diverse cast. Awesome to have a female lead. And interesting that the captain technically isn't our focused, you know, point of view character. All of that is great, but 
as you were saying, we've got 51 years of established Star Trek history. And I also go to the Star Wars comparison of, well, why was it okay to shit on the, the, the prequels in that case and not, uh, you know, Star Trek? No, leave us alone. This is our Star Trek. And it's I, at least that's that's the chorus that I'm hearing of the people that are just accepting this show at face value. And for whatever reasons, I, I don't know if the, how well-versed they are. And this is great because I love Uber Nerd Talks and one of the reasons why I'm happy to have you back. Because you've got interesting points of view and you back it up because you, st- you are a student of Star Trek. And I always love having these kinds of conversations and certainly about Star Trek. But yeah, it's weird. So I don't, I don't get it either in terms of the blind love. And, I, and also, I'm not sure I believe that's representative of the entire watch, watching audience. Well, you know, it's, it's, what's really funny and what people forget about Star Trek is, you know, the original series ran for three years, 79 episodes from 66 to 69, and it went off the air. And when I came to it as a little kid and, and fell in love with the show and, and when it went into syndication in 72, yep. I, I thought that was it. You know, well, and it was then it. <laughs> it was it. And then in 73 and 74, you had the animated series, True. which involved the original actors. And it was basically an extension of the five-year mission. And even though the animation was not the best, a lot of the stories were very interesting. No question. And certainly a worthy follow-up. But what was really amazing – and what Star Trek never gets enough credit for, and it was a, it was unprecedented, I think, in pop culture history. In '79, when Star Trek: The Motion Picture came out, they accounted for that lost time. It was it, it, the, the 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 original crew, a bunch of TV actors, were suddenly playing their same parts, and it was supposed to be in the in movie time about five years later, but. They were older. Mm-hmm. The Enterprise was had been in dry dock, and everybody they, – they brought these characters back, and they advanced them in age. Yep. So they got older, and nobody was happy. You know, Kirk had been head of Starfleet operations for two and a half years. McCoy was studying Fabrini medicine from yes. the episode from The World is Hollow and I've Touched the Sky. Spock was trying to purge his human half, undergoing the Colinar discipline on Vulcan. Yep. And so our characters had grown. And so the show, Star Trek, as a pop culture phenomenon, unlike comic books and unlike many movie franchises, James Bond was just replaced with another actor. We got our same actors back, and their aging, moving into middle age, became part of the plot. And the Star Trek universe suddenly had a lineage you could follow. So we had now seen a a slice of history. If you go back... To the Menagerie, which took place in about 2255, we had seen younger Spock as science officer on the Enterprise. Eleven years later, we saw him still on the Enterprise serving under Kirk as first officer. Mm-hmm. So there's ten years of Star Trek history. All right. Then we see the, the five-year mission. And then five years beyond that, Star Trek The Motion Picture takes place. And then presumably another five years took place. Because Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan takes place 15 years after Space Seed, which was a first season TOS episode. Right. So, so suddenly Star Trek had, in a very interesting way, started telling its own history to the audience. Agreed. And then in 1987, with The Next Generation, 
it took place vaguely 80 years right. after the original series. So suddenly we've now seen almost 100 years of the Star Trek universe depicted. We'd seen various eras, you know, the, the, the Pike era, the Kirk era, yep. the motion picture era where we'd seen – the span of, of 20 years or something. And, and then the next generation. So you're watching this franchise. And then, of course, with the advent of Deep Space Nine and Voyager and then the movies, the next generation films. Right. Star Trek was constantly moving forward Agreed. as a pop culture, not only in universe, in the canon of Star Trek, but as a pop culture phenomenon. We'd now seen it go from 1966 – and when Voyager went off the air in the early aughts, that that's a that's a twenty five year span of time uh, it, uh, that took place where Star Trek lived, it grew, it matured, it changed, it evolved. Yes, but it was constantly moving forward as I myself, as a fan and a viewer, aged. Absolutely. And then even Enterprise. Even Enterprise, a prequel show, goes back 150 years before Kirk took command of the Enterprise. Right. And even though it was a prequel show, it still expanded, whether it was as successful as it wanted to be. That's debatable. <laughs> but but it expanded. Certainly, the fourth season was worthy of, of no Star Trek Agreed. mythology. And so suddenly, we're, 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 we're now seeing 250 years of a fictional universe. <laughs> I mean, this was some J.R. Tolkien level, Silmarillion, Lord of the Rings, you know, maybe not that long, but we're, one of the great joys of being a fan of a fictional universe, whether it's Frank Herbert's Dune, mm -hmm. whether it's Ian Fleming's Bond novels, whether it's the Star Trek franchise, whether it's, it's Harry Potter now, Game of Thrones, the, the Thomas Covenant, the unbeliever, you know, the, all of these <laughs> fictional universes yeah. we get enamored of. The, the great thing about them is we can descend in, into them and immerse ourselves in them. And, and they, they live and they, they breathe and they grow and evolve in our imagination. Well, what happened to Star Trek uh, when J.J. Abrams made Star Trek 2009 is all of that was halted. And remember – during all of this time, there were there were technical manuals and art books, and there were all these different artisans that worked on the show that were working within this lineage of this fictional universe. And then the decision was made in 2009 to take all of that and throw it away. All of that evolution for a quarter of a century, imagination and advancing this fictional universe – and they decided to go back and let's tell the story of, of Kirk and Spock actually meeting. But rather than say that they were going to do it within the continuity that we knew, they decided to just dispense with that. And, oh, no, 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 we're going to start from scratch and reinvent Star Trek, which was basically the antithesis. It was antithetical to what Star Trek had been sure. for its own fan base because they decided we have to go after the kids, man. We have to go after the the, the millennials and the, the social networking people. Right. So what we got was a very one-note, um, dumbed down, yep. uh, really uh, – it, it, it really wasn't about anything because Star Trek 
its core is an allegorical story that tells tales that are supposed to be allegorical in nature to our world today. So hopefully each episode of Star Trek would give us insight into the present and, and, and what is happening and how can we as the audience sort of affect our future by, by taking the lessons from this fictional future that we love so much. Sure. You know, and, and, and watching – I mean Star Trek 09, there's a lot of people – I don't begrudge anybody that likes things. If you like things, I think great. Good for you. Sure. But the problem is those films are not they – are, they are amalgamations of other top – Star Trek 09, is, it's Top Gun. It's, 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 it's James Dean. It's, it's Martin Marlon Brando in The Wild One riding a motorcycle. They, they literally – like – it's so uncreative that instead of instead of a kid doing the 23rd century equivalent of stealing a car, he just steals a car. Right. Like and, and crashes a car. And it's like if that isn't the most if that isn't the most bankrupt bit of creativity. And by the way, he's playing a 300 year old piece of hip hop, which cracks me up as well. Go on. And, and you look at that and you're like. That that could have been in any movie, not not a Star Trek right. movie certainly, but in any film, and and it flew in the face. I mean, the idea that starships were constructed in orbit was imaginative and awesome, right? But the idea that the Enterprise is is built on Earth, <laughs> so J.J. Abrams can get one shot of a guy rolling up on a motorcycle, basically to a shipyard, which we've seen in in how many movies? How many movies in in the past have in, in the olden times, did somebody crack a bottle of champagne on the hull of a ship that's <laughs> cast off into the sea? I mean, compare that to generations this, where we've got it in space and you don't right, realize you, that it's the floating champagne bottle and stuff. Absolutely, man. No, and you look at that and you, you th- I, I just think to myself, like, why then was Star Trek entrusted to a director who, had, whenever J.J. Abrams could say so, he said, I wasn't a Star Trek fan? Right. We're great. And, you know, and you look at that. And so now we have Star Trek Discovery. And and I'll, I will admit this to you. I have read everything that was created for Star Trek Discovery under Brian Fuller's stewardship. Okay. Including his original draft of the pilot. And then Nicholas Meyer wrote the second uh, hour of that pilot. And and I've seen a lot of the preliminary design sketches and everything, and and uh, for various reasons, I mean, Brian was replaced. But clearly, the, my problem with Star Trek Discovery is, it's 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 being made now by a bunch of Hollywood writers that are are everyone's jockeying for their voice to be heard under underneath a man who has his Oscar. So whenever he wants to pull it out. And slam it on the table. He can do that, but he's the same guy that wrote Batman and Robin and the abysmal Lost in Space film that New Line put out. <laughs> Is that you um, know Akiva Goldsmith or yeah Akiva Goldsmith? Okay, and and uh, somebody I've actually met <laughs> actually one of the one of the producers of Free Enterprise was a, a friend of his. I don't begrudge Akiva, uh, Akiva Goldsmith his success. Sure. you know I'd love to have his success. Good for him. You know he's written some great stuff. He's gotten an Oscar, but the problem is all of these people that have been working on Star Trek are trying to now make it something that isn't Star Trek. They're all changing it. 
And the worst thing that I – the biggest problem I have about Star Trek Discovery is it's so far up its own ass <laughs> that it, it – for me, it, it's like why have we watched nine episodes where in every episode the propulsion system of the ship is front and center? Like are you kidding me? All we need to know is that it has warp drive and it goes. Unless the warp drive doesn't work and they're getting sucked into the gravity well of a planet or they're being drawn toward an 11,000-mile-long space amoeba, whatever. The propulsion system should not be a plot point and certainly not a propulsion system that uh, we've got We've got microscopic organisms that are now 20 feet long and we've got – which is – he's a spice navigator from Dune. I right. mean there's all this – Right. There's all these people. Everybody's throwing in all of this junk that you can pick and choose and go, oh, you, you can even trace it back to like, oh, that guy clearly read this article. He saw some BuzzFeed article on the tardigrade. Now, <laughs> in Brian Fuller's – in Brian Fuller's you know, uh, version, yeah, there was going the to be difference. a tardigrade. Go on. There's a tardigrade crewman, which is interesting. But if you go back – look, my problem too is that I'm a big reader of the Star Trek novels. Me too. There's so many great Star Trek novels. I mean Diane Duane, yes. who was one of the great Star Trek novelists, had Ensign Narat, who was a horda yes. from Devil in the Dark. A horda from Devil in the Dark was an ensign on the Enterprise. Yep. Now, that is far more fun – it's far more entertaining. It's far more interesting than anything we've seen of the tardigrade or Stamets being genetically engineered. Right. All of that gobbledygook that, that <laughs> makes no sense. I mean it's, it's, it's one ridiculous notion piled up on another to inter- that completely interferes with them telling a real story because, they, again, they're so far up their own mythology. <laughs> you that can swear, Rob. It's okay, but go on. I mean, there it, it is – watching that show makes me want to – like it makes my gums bleed and I want to tear my eyes out with a spoon <laughs> because I'm like, did you guys just sit in the writer's room and throw out a bunch of ideas? Where is your plot? Yes. Where There, there has been – it is it, – as far as serialized storytelling – it is so far beyond or beneath what they did in seasons five, six, and seven of Deep Space Nine, telling a story about a galaxy-wide conflict. Yes. And and it's not me being some old guy. It's me being a fan of great storytelling. Amen. Yep. And, and I look at Discovery and look, the characters could be interesting if they were ever written as real people. Okay. I mean, it, it's – look, I'll, I, I hold my – tongue because everyone's like oh you just don't like star trek discovery because of axanar this that and the other thing i'm like no i don't i I don't like star trek discovery because i've read a thousand better star trek stories that we have yet to see i own every star trek novel and i could pull a hundred of them out that would make better star trek than the drivel they're serving up to us now no question those writers have eight and i've heard in some cases, $12 million because there's 19 executive producers. I mean, you know, good for CBS All Access. We'll see how long they survive when Star Trek's not on the air. But the fact is, the thing about Star Trek is it's baseline. You've got 51 years of – you've got fantastic episodes. You've got trend-setting episodes. You've got compelling episodes. You've got all these amazing episodes – and Star Trek Discovery is – I'm watching a, a spirograph starship fly around the universe <laughs> on a spore drive. I'm like, 
guys, tell me a story that matters that I can believe in, that I don't have to stop every two seconds and go, wait, what? Right. You know, you're, you're adding all this level of detail that matters not. You, you know, you, you tell me, like Stamets being on this planet, when you find out that Stamets has, I mean, pardon me, not Stamets, uh, Saru. Mm-hmm. When you find out that Saru has led his entire life in fear and being on a planet and, and it changes him and he no longer has to feel fear. Well, a good Star Trek episode would spend an entire, well, in the, in the case of Discovery, 45 minutes exploring that idea. But you don't even know that Saru's lived his whole life in fear ever. It's never even been alluded to. He's just a, a, a species that was bred to no death. By the way, the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> that, that makes no sense at all. In the, in, in, nowhere in life has any species ever existed that is designed to sense death. I mean, that was just something somebody in the writer's room, probably smoking a little too much herb, said, yeah, man, what if? And whenever he gets terrified, something comes out of his neck. I mean, it's so – like, really? Yes. In what universe does this take and, – and, and, and being a student of the great – like, if you go back and you read Frank Herbert's Dune mm-hmm. and you want to look at world building, there's, there's – that's the pinnacle of science fiction world building. You know, or Peter Hamilton, one of his space operas, or or any number of, of Tolkien, the Silmarillion. Of course. You know, write the fucking Silmarillion of Star Trek. Right. And, and, and base it off of that. And the thing is, these writers already had that. And then they decide, okay, we're going to go back and, and tell a story 10 years before the time of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy or whatever, as if that's some novel idea. We've already seen that. That happened in the Menagerie exactly. in the first season of Star Trek 51 years ago. Yep. You know, and it's like uh, n- none of it makes sense. Of course, it's it's not really the prime universe or whatever. And it, it's just it's it's annoying to watch everybody rather than take on the creative challenge of building on this 51 year legacy since 2009, everybody wants to reinvent it. Agreed. And it's, and, go on. I, I don't want to, I don't want to interrupt you. <laughs> well, if you're going to re, if you're going to, if you're, if you, you, you can reinvent it. And that's what Star Trek has done. Of course. In, in next generation reinvented itself in the eighties. And when Michael Piller came on board in the third season, when they really started cooking and they started trying to stop emulating the, the structure of the original series, it became something new. You had a counselor on the bridge. You had a captain who wanted to talk rather than fight. You had Star Trek has always reflect. Yeah, you had individual characters versus really focusing on the Trinity. And even then, it really was mission of the week television, as all of television was in the 60s, really through the 70s. And all of a sudden with Pillar, you're right. It was, no, wait a minute. Like, we never really got into the backstories of Uhura, Scotty, you know, Chekhov and Sulu. And instead, it's like, no, Worf actually has an interesting backstory. Let's explore that this week. Here's a Data episode. Here's a Counselor Troy episode. Here's a Crusher episode. And and you and you got a, a richer look at things. And you're right. I mean, no, there was always innovation. God, I'm really glad you brought up the Horda from the novels. And I, I felt the same way about Diane Duane. I mean, she is one of the better Star Trek novelists. And yeah, and, and, it, and it was... Those things were fan service that served the new story 
in a very, you know, a, a new story and good storytelling, but again, based on the foundation of what had been there before. And you're right, and it's funny, because I never really thought about it beyond what's going on on Discovery. Um, it smacks of all reboot, bad reboot movies, in that they are poor images of what came before, Man from Uncle even. I mean, you know, and even that was at least slightly entertaining, but they can't hold a candle to the original thing because they lost their way. And it's, yeah, it's like the music video version of, rather than a full album of music. And it's just like, here's, here's some ideas that everybody likes and here's a bunch of fan service. And certainly Lorca's office is a classic example of that. In these meaningless, oh, look, there's a Gorn skeleton. There's a Tribble on his desk. Meaningless. Meaningless. Well, well, you know what? Here, here's the funny thing. Here's, here's what I can't stand as a fan. If you're going to show me a Gorn skeleton, you have just raised in my mind a thousand questions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, wait a minute. Uh, we know from the original series, which takes place 10 years after Discovery, if it really is in it, continuity, which it's universe. clearly not, right. in the same universe, uh, the Gorns, the Federation wasn't aware the Gorns existed. Yep. And it's like, so Lorca, not only does he have a Gorn skeleton, he had to have known someone or either killed a Gorn or whatever. Right. And and as a as a fan, when I see that stuff... You're, you've raised a hundred different questions that you're not answering, and it, it, it and it's not because I'm old. It's because if they've chosen to put a Gorn skeleton in the show, somebody thought about it. But the problem is they didn't think about it enough, right? And and for the last fifty years, you've had incredible artists. You've had even comic books, absolutely, and especially a lot of the great novels. They've spent the novelists have spent far more time and effort thinking about the Star Trek universe than the, I will say it, the idiots in the Star Trek Discovery writer's room who are writing generic pablum that is not based on anything like, I read a, an article about, these are, these are my favorite Star Trek episodes. Well, they were just about what you'd expect. I, I, I felt like you know, it was it, they were about as insightful as asking my mom what her favorite Star the Trek Discovery was. Writers Room was asked what their favorite Star Trek episodes. Yeah, were. yes, yeah. I saw it as well. Go on. And I, I'm like, you know what? I'd rather you guys have a holistic understanding of the Star Trek universe. And one of the reasons that I read Star Trek novels and became a fan of of the Pocket Books novel series is that a lot of the writers had really interesting, very well thought out. Diane Duane being one of the best. I mean, if you read her books, The Wounded Sky, My Enemy, My Ally. Doctor's Orders, Doctor's right? Orders, that Spock's World, Spock's which is World. the first pocket hardcover yes. Star Trek novel that came out in 88. Um, Absolutely. These, these books, these were novels that expanded the Star Trek universe in a Tolkien-esque fashion. Agreed. With that kind of rich backstory, with that kind of attention to detail. And, and I grew up, I spent you know, four decades of my life <laughs> immersed in, in Star Trek lore where it was being expanded uh, so thoughtfully. And if you had a working knowledge of this, the way the Star Wars team has a story group, you know, whether it's Patrick or uh, uh, Pedro, what is it? Uh, Hildago, what is the name? Oh, you know, I'm uh, bowing to you to that stuff because I like um, Star Trek well, Star I, Wars. Par but... Pardon me, Mr. Hildago, I'm sorry. Yeah. But <laughs> whether it's Dave Filoni, who's over on the animation side, okay. you've got 
they're, they're, the 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 novel, the Star Wars novelists. I mean, they they've done such a great job. Even when they decided to dispense, when Disney bought everything and they got rid of the expanded universe, they've brought back things and put them into continuity. Like Admiral Thrawn, yes, is is back in Rebels or or whatever. Maybe he'll be in Last Jedi. Who knows? I don't know. Sure, but um, all of these things are 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 important, and I feel Star Trek has always given the short shrift because. The stewardship of it has been such since 2009 where they just want to change it all and and they're like, let's here's what's wrong with Star Trek. And the problem is that impulse is not wrong. Star Trek has an aging fan base. Sure. It's not bringing in young people because it's no longer – I mean I started watching Star Trek when I was a little kid. I'm with you, man. You know, like five years old. Right, me too. And and I and I grew up with it. And Star Trek is no longer relevant. I know they're trying to make it. My, my problem with the the new audience and the people that are that are watching it. God bless them for loving Star Trek. Sure. And I think it's great that they do. The problem is they're not being served up the stories that will resonate with them going into the future. Yep. Everybody so so desperately clinging. To they're like we're gonna be we're gonna like these characters because we're supposed to like them, you know. And watching how Stamets has has developed, but it's been interesting. But the the show is so it lurches back and forth. It doesn't know what it is. As far as serialized storytelling goes, it's a failure to the point where in this last episode they just killed every Klingon we've ever met, True. except Laurel. <laughs> you know, and you're you're like, what, what if that was the case? What does any of this matter? Right. Why have we been following well, these characters for nine episodes? Absolutely. And it's like, you know, when you mention a Klingon D7 battlecruiser, I know what a Klingon D7 battlecruiser is. I've looked at it my whole life. And and it was used in the original series. It was used in the animated series. It was used in Star Trek The Motion Picture. It was used in Star Trek Two during the Kobayashi Maru scenario. We saw it in Deep Space Nine even. A Klingon D7 battlecruiser has been the same for a long time. Yep. And then, of course, they decide to show us something that, you know, Neville Page is like, we're going to make it look biomechanical. Like, oh, like H.R. Geiger and the Alien franchise? Yeah, I get it. I mean, but that's not – you already have a beautiful design lineage for 50 years. Like, no one redesigned the Millennium Falcon. Imagine what people would have said if they'd done that. Right. Let's make the Millennium Falcon look like some biomechanoid ship. Just because, you know, Neville Page and his design team wants to make it look that way. Right. Like, like really? Why are you doing that to Star Trek? Because why? It, it, no one even knows why. You know, they're just doing it For and people are like, yeah, it. man, that's cool. Yeah. No, I agree. You man. know, it, the redesign of the Vulcans. And again, we got that difference in 79 when they brought it back. Um, but again, cleverly, they kind of explained some of the changes. I loved, of course, in Trials and Tribulations when they, you know, even just brush off and Worf has that great line we don't talk about when Klingons look right. humanoid and everything. And then we got one of the few good season four Enterprise explanations that, you know, Noonien Sun's, dead, you know, ancestor was, you know, screwing with the, you know, uh, Augment and uh, Khan's. Uh, Eugenics, yeah, the augment virus, and all that. Right. Although and, I think and that, that was... and that spelled and that spilled over to Klingon, and they and they explained it really well. And it's like, okay, yeah, although that's I really thought it was a, a little bit of a stretch, but yeah. you, you know, but still, yeah. And, and, and here's the thing: <laughs> I what, what's really 
what, what I find really interesting, and, and it was shown in the last episode, you know, Into the Woods I Go, um, uh, the, the thing about Klingons is they're, they're very Shakespearean in their delivery. And, yes. and, and when you're speaking a fictional language and you're watching it subtitled, you know, the characters, when they're speaking it, the actors really don't have a sense of, of what it means because they've never – it's not real. So they've never heard it – they've never heard anyone talk to them in that language. Right. And in this past episode, they finally showed the Klingons <laughs> speaking English. Yep. And you can finally be like, oh, now here's a villain I can pay attention to because if you're, if you're listening to a, a language that isn't real, subtitled, uh, it, it's doubly – removing for an audience no question you know it's it's and if you you know you go back to the the great example in 1990 in hunt for red october you know you're on a russian submarine and clearly they're speaking russian and they do that great scene where they push in to the political officer and he's speaking russian and then the last word is armageddon and then the camera pulls out and you're like oh armageddon was in is in english and and you pull out and they're all speaking english because the actors you know you can't connect with an actor um, if they don't know what they're saying. Right. And even if I'm watching a French film in French, subtitled in English, I understand that those actors are clearly acting because they know what they're saying. They understand the words so they can act. But the, the Klingon watching this interminable uh, subtitling, and I'm sure the writers and the producers are like, isn't that cool? No, douchebags, it's not cool. <laughs> You've, you, 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 have, you have ruined... Any dramatic uh, possibilities that you want to create in the – you oh, know, yeah. that's the last place you should be applying uh, some kind of, oh, let's make the universe more realistic. Well, and no. Again, well, and again, because Kalis – you can talk about Kalis and his importance to the spirit of the Klingon race. And again, all of us who have been on the 51-year ride, we get it. But you are denying that opportunity to the new audience. And it's very easy to explain that Kalis is a Christ-like figure in the Klingon you know, mythos if you are speaking in the language that everyone is, should be hearing it in their own language. And you're right, man. No, that's a huge barrier well, also, and unnecessary. What's so, what's so ridiculous is that Star Trek, especially beginning with Next Generation and into Deep Space Nine and, and certain episodes of Voyager – the Klingon culture was delved into yep. so extensively. Absolutely, it, it, it's so what they did was so awesome. Yes, that they're going back and they're showing us this version. I mean, they're all probably patting themselves on the back, and we're all sitting there going, "Really? I mean, your versions of the Klingons are 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 so lackluster, and so I mean, the makeups are too big, they're too heavy, you know. So the the actors can barely enunciate Klingon, much less English." And you're watching this and you're going, this is not where you should be putting your, your – you're not – look, I understand like with Dances with Wolves and they're speaking Lakota and it's all very interesting. Or one of my favorite things that's ever been on TV is Shogun. Sure, I remember it well. takes place in Japan. It's level, absolutely, man. You know, they, 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 didn't, uh, they didn't subtitle it yes. because you as a viewer were with Richard Chamberlain's character. You kind of learned Japanese as it, it went along. Agreed. Because Japanese was real. You know, and, right. and, and it, it, it worked. But this whole thing with the Klingons, it's like after 51 years, you know, why are you going back and trying to change everything? Even Doctor Who 
has taken its 50 year plus 52, 53 years now 53. history and, and utilized it. Whereas discovery, no, no, no. You know, since 2009, all these, all these people are like, let's just go change star Trek. But the fun of the star Trek universe is, is that lineage. It is that history. Right. It is being able to like, you know, in next generation, when, when, by the way, it's Sarek. Everyone's like Sarek. I heard you say that, and I understand. And I and I would say Sarek as well, but it says opposed to Sarek. But go on. Sarek is what Spock says. He says in Journey to Babel, Ambassador Sarek and his wife are my parents. You know, right? I, I mean, that's that, that's it. When I was a kid, you know, Sarek, it's Sarek, Sarek, Sarek. You know, Picard's like, you know, Sarek because he has a fucking English accent. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, it's uh, American English. It's Sarek, and everyone's saying Sarek, Sarek. Like, how the does, fuck, people? How does Nimoy say it in uh, 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 Now Shame on Me? And, I, and honestly, I love that he you says are in, he in, says uh, the, Sarek. Well, no, but I'm saying back in the Next Generation uh, two-parter unification, right? I believe you know. Oh, right. I, I mean, I think he would say Sark. I don't think he says Sarek. I want, oh, man, I wish we could just immediately bring it up right now. Maybe I'll pop it in <laughs> in the middle of our conversation right now. But it's, but it's, it's like, you know, and, and but everyone gets mad at me. But oh, when they're please. saying Sarek, Sarek is, 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 it's, it's, it, there's no E on the end. I'm with you. No, I get it. You know, that, but anyway, would, I mean, that's just me. My own curiosity would be interesting to hear how Nimoy said it in unification in, in next yeah that's time. that's a good question so i see and again this is why the trek scholars you know but it'd again. be like saying it'd be like if all of a sudden they start saying spack <laughs> it's spock by the way big it's from not chicago spack. spack would be absolutely nice in terms of yeah spack yeah, like he's my favorite uh, vulcan over yeah i love him it's a spack man i mean it's but 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 it, it's funny people think it, it's no it's spock course it's Spock. You know, it's just like you don't say Dr. Spock. It's Mr. Spock. That's right. Uh, even though he's a scientist. And it's, you know, it's this kind of thing that I, I know I, all these people listening are going, well, who is this old guy? No, like everyone's not. like the old, the old guy. But I'm like, <laughs> look, you know, the funny thing about it is it, it, these same people, if you messed up something in the Harry Potter universe, they'd be the first people to jump all over you. Rob, in your own movie in Free Enterprise, that's one of the cutest scenes in Toys R Us when the kid corrects Eric McCormick and uh, and Lamar and those other guys when they're in the toy store and stuff. It's Prince Shizor, you know? yeah, and that's a yeah. great scene. Which, and yeah, man, no, that's hey, this is this is modern mythology, and there are like no, get it right, man, absolutely. You know, there was I, I read a story today um, that there is a I think it's a school in Utah, <laughs> and and they their mascot is going to be the Phoenix, okay, or their team is going to be the Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And a father protested because he said that the word Phoenix can be perverted and turned into penis. Oh, it sounds Christ. like penis. Wow. And he, he doesn't want his children to grow up and, you know, people be made fun of. Or if the kids are on the, one of the sports teams, they get called the penises instead of the Phoenix. <laughs> And I'm like – and the petition's up to like 3,000 signatures now. And I'm like, this is what's wrong with our country. Jesus Christ. Right there. Yeah, man. I, I mean when I was growing up, people weren't this stupid. Amen, son. You know, and, and, and it's it, – it, 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 and, and if you were this stupid, you know, people would look at you and, and smack you in the face and, and, and because you deserved it. Or at the very least, to it, dismiss their, their idiocy and just be like – 
okay. You know, just walk away. Yeah, I mean, look, you know what? You, you can't. I got beat up when I was a kid. My parents didn't run to school and demand the school do something. I hear you, man. I mean, you know, there the there's something state. to be said for taking care of your own business. Of course. And now it's it's it's. I, 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 you know, we're through the looking glass. But well, ironic. Uh, anyway, comparison given I feel back like to I've gone on. You've let me go on my oh. epic rant, and I've I've said my you know I've said my piece. You must have questions. Of course. Well, I want to ask you. Well, first of all, let's go back to as you said. We see a Gorn skeleton. There's that, and I believe it's Robert McKee's theory of if you see a gun on the wall, you better use it. It better show. Like if there's a shotgun on a cabin wall. Someone is going to fire that gun before that story is over. And I think that's some of the mistakes that Discovery makes with its fan service. But I want to go back to your initial point about the J.J. people coming in, rebooting Star Trek from the beginning and giving us this simpler version. Do we know, is there, I mean, do you have any knowledge in terms of why aren't, why isn't the story moving forward? I mean, one of the questions I did get from Word Balloon listeners, um, you know, Ben Hayes, he says it. You know, why is it said in the past? Are they actually not allowed to have TV shows set in the current time period? Is there something? I, I mean, there's a very funny, I'm sure you saw it, A Midnight Sun, I think, is the name of this one kind of nerd podcast and, and video right. cast. And they had some hilarious, it was like watching JFK conspiracy videos. And and I was fascinated by it, but I know there is some there has to be some truth to it because the burning question is why aren't we moving forward with the story? Is it just a simple creative choice and saying well every universally Kirk and Spock and McCoy are known best? Let's set it back in the past and let's touch on anything new with reminders of well, what if Sarek did adopt, adopt a human child and that any that we have this kind of direct connection to the original series rather than, again, moving forward from where we left off at the beginning of the 2009 movie where I think it's a very interesting point where all of a sudden Romulus is destroyed. There is an interesting political void in the Star Trek universe to move forward. And I know I'm speaking on things that you already know. But yeah, so what do you know about that if you know anything? I honestly don't know anything, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean... Having gone through a situation where the rights to Star Trek question in terms of who owned what, um, sure, you know there there was a lot of look. I, I, when it comes to Bad Robot, J.J. Abrams is clearly a very shrewd. He comes from a, a Hollywood family. Sure. He's a very shrewd businessman. Why does C three PO have a red arm in the Force Awakens? He has a red arm, so when they sell a C three PO toy or a poster or whatever, everyone knows that J.J. Abrams gets a cut of that because the only C-3PO with the red arm is in his movie. Interesting. Go on. And I know that Bad Robot, when uh, when Star Trek was 09 was coming out, they wanted to get rid of all merchandising of the original show. Right. And also, Shows. am I correct, Vault, the original episodes as well, and, and of all the spinoffs and the original series, kind of in a Disney yes. fashion, and be like, no, you got to focus on this new 2009 iteration of Star Trek. Yes. I mean, basically, that's what they wanted to do. I mean, and I would say, you know what? If your Star Trek was awesome... Sure. Okay. Sure. But, but basically, you served up half-baked ideas yeah. that made no sense dumb, dumb. with no science and no... You're, it, look... 
I've said this before a million times. The the most important thing when you are creating science fiction, fantasy, horror, or any kind of uh, a flight of fancy genre, you must create verisimilitude within the story that you're telling, which basically boils down to believability. Right. And and uh, that's a three dimensional believability, which means you have to believe in the world, you have to believe in in the the entire milieu, but most of all, you have to believe in the characters. Yep. And if you believe in the characters, well, I've always said this, you always put your characters before your universe. It's the Burnett axiom. <laughs> and, and everyone, you know, like when I read about the universal dark universe, you know, we're going to take all of our old monsters and we're going to create a dark universe. Right. I'm like, you know what? I know everybody wants to do what Marvel did. But if you want to do what Marvel did, do what fucking Marvel did. Go make Iron Man. And when Iron Man's great, then you make the Incredible Hulk, which isn't as great, but it worked. Then you go make Thor, and then you go make Captain America, the first Avenger, and then you make the Avengers. Right. All these people, Hollywood, they all are looking to Marvel's success. I mean, Thor Ragnarok is already the highest grossing Thor movie, and it's going to be you know close to a billion dollars when all is said and right. done. They have done it right. Because you have Kevin Feige who worked on 13 Marvel movies before the MCU and he saw everything that's wrong and how it doesn't work. You know, and the, the problem is no one has ever run Star Trek that's loved Star Trek. I know. Isn't that weird? Rick, isn't that crazy? Rick Berman. Rick Berman. The problem is yeah. the people that know that love Star Trek are are not uh, – they, they can't work in Hollywood. They don't understand – the, it's very it's a very rarefied air to be able to work in movies and also understand the genre that they come from. The funny thing about Star Trek and Star Wars, Star Trek has a wealth, a gigantic treasure trove of stories that have already been told. Novels, comics. Yep. What has Marvel done? Now, Marvel doesn't go and directly adapt their their comics, right. but they take the storylines. Winter Soldier, a great run. Ed Brubaker's run on Captain America. They, they they went and looked at that. Age of Ultron, different story, but there was an Age of Ultron comic That's story. Right. They're, That's right. The p Planet Hulk was part of where that, the inspiration for Ragnarok. Absolutely, came from. Greg Pak. I mean, they're going back. If if I worked for if I worked on on Star Trek, if I was a Star Trek executive. I would be developing – I would turn Star Trek into another billion-dollar franchise that would have uh, that would have all kinds of elements that would uh, – like Disney XD has the Rebels show. I'd have the Rebels version of Star Trek. I would have I would have sweeping epic feature films that resonated with audiences in all four quadrants the way Star Trek should do it. I mean I, I, I could tell you how to do it because it already exists. That's right. It's already, it, it's already been done. The blueprint's there. And yet the – the people that they they have to run this stuff, J.J. Uh, Abrams. Well, I was never a Star Trek fan. Then why did these motherfuckers let him direct it? Uh, you know, agreed. and and then they bring on these the writers from Xena. I mean, and look, I don't begrudge. They're all much richer and more successful than me. And I'm sitting here screaming about you know Star Trek since I've been a little kid. And I'm just, you know, I'm still pr producing and editing a, a, a less than million dollar indie film right now. Right. And a, and, a, and, a, and a really cool series on crisis medicine. How do you how do you survive active shooter events like what happened in Vegas? So I'm not making these movies. I'm not getting paid the big bucks. But if I was getting paid the big bucks, I'd make a lot more money than these motherfuckers. <laughs> 
because because you know what the, the the problem is? They're making movies. Those Star Trek movies, those movies are about people that aren't heroic. The 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 key, the failure of Star Trek of the J.J. Abrams era of Star Trek movies, is our characters are not fun or likable or successful doing what they do. I mean, if you watch the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark, mm-hmm. the beginning, the opening scene right. where where we're in South America and Indiana Jones penetrates the temple yep. <coughs> to get that idol. That is a 10-minute sequence that tells you everything you know about introducing a character and making him immediately beloved because he is a badass. Yep. And he is such a badass, and he knows his job so well that he penetrates that temple, he gets that idol, but he's not infallible, is he? Right. Oh, no. The temple starts to fall apart. Sapito gets killed. He gets – well, he gets the jump. Sapito gets the idol for a while. Then Indiana Jones escapes. Sapito is killed by the temple. And then just when he survived everything, he's done everything you need – there's Rene Belloc in his linen suit <laughs> and with the Hovitos army, perhaps you could wound them. If only you spoke Hovitos. <laughs> Once again, Dr. Jones, we see there is nothing you could possess which I cannot take away. So in 10 minutes, you're introduced to a character you've never met before that you immediately fall in love with because he's capable, he's smart, he's a charming rogue, he's, and, and he, he's successful at what he does, but he's not infallible. He's still smart. He's still a badass. But someone was able to get the drop on him. And that is great character building sure. in 10 minutes. Yep. In, in the three Star Trek movies, all we do is see Kirk repeatedly fail. Agreed. At the beginning of Star Trek Beyond, he fucks up another diplomatic mission and then spends his captain's log telling us how fucking bored he yes. is. Life is episodic. You know what? Yeah. Fuck you, Captain Kirk. <laughs> I mean, fuck you. You know what? Captain Kirk is the kind of character that when he's introduced, the audience should be smiling from ear to ear because this is our favorite badass. That's how I was growing up. Yes. Captain Kirk was a fucking badass even when he's middle-aged and has to wear glasses. He's a badass. It's coming through now, Khan. And they take down the Reliant Shields. Yep. In, 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 and I'm looking at this. When I was watching those movies, I'm like, what kind of bullshit – lazy screenwriting is this it's terrible yeah, man and it's like oh i just watched top gun this weekend i'm gonna make kirk top gun you know whatever he's gonna be maverick yeah he's gonna have daddy issues he's like i mean are you kidding me i, I i'm watching something if you read the reeves stevens novel they wrote a star trek novel they wrote with william shatner reeves yeah. the, judy and garfield reeves stevens are two of the best Star Trek novelists. And if you read Prime Directive, go no further. You want to make Star Trek Four Paramount? Adapt Prime Directive. There's your movie. Yeah. You'll make a lot more money than the, the, the other three Star Trek movies had. And you make it for $125 million. Do, do You don't need to spend $200 million and whatever ungodly sums of money that they spent on those movies. If you had anyone who understands is it po- how to make Star Trek. Is it possible that J.J. being involved in Discovery is some sort of settlement not making a fourth Star Trek movie? Because I was looking forward to new people working with Star Trek. And honestly, 
a guy that I have had on this podcast before, Jesse Alexander, is one of the writers on the Discovery team and was a, was a lost writer and an alias writer. And, you know, I, I respect his both, body. By the, way, by the way, both shows that totally betrayed their audiences as they went along. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know, and, and that's the problem. La- these, alias these writers, absolutely the, lost its way. I didn't mind. You know, Alias, you, I've never seen a show. It was the Super Bowl episode where SD6 was taken down. Oh, I remember that one, yeah. You know, where, where – and you're like, the show never recovered. And, and Lost, Lost was a show that, that – that, here, here's, here's what I, I – and I, by the way, I was a huge Lost fan mm-hmm. until the last season where I wanted to, again, use a sledgehammer on my TV because they, they, <laughs> the writers clearly – they're like, wait a minute. We're, we're following the show. No one ever in Lost ever sat down and said, dude, we've time-traveled to the 70s. Is that not fucking insane? The characters never said that. They just went along with whatever insanity was thrown at them. And the viewers are like, yeah, there's there's a giant butt plug down in the bottom of the island. And if you pull it out, some shit's going to come out. I mean, it's like water, golden, whatever. I mean, it was so ridiculous. <laughs> and it was a show that totally betrayed its audience. No, no, man, it's not purgatory. No, no, man, it's not con. I mean, it, it, how how stupid can you be? There are novels about Khan. Greg Cox wrote a novel trilogy about Khan. Absolutely. And it's like, if you're going to watch, if you're going to make Star Trek Into Darkness, this is a perfect example. You, you, awful, awful, awful film. But, but (laughs) forget that it's, forget it's a Star Trek movie. When Benedict Cumberbatch says his name, Khan, the character's like, who? Right. You know, they, they don't know. Of course not. And, and, and they have no idea who he is. And even the audience is like, okay, well, if you look at the conception of Khan, the original use of Khan, right space the, it's, it, if you were to think today that somebody would go back and go, oh, yeah, we got to, you know, we're going to take a character from a, a first season episode of the original series and put him in a movie, you know, now people would go, you can't do that. But it was so genius that they went back. And use the same actor. That was why Star Trek was so interesting because they made those choices. Now, all you had to do, like if I was directing Star Trek Into Darkness, it would have opened 1996 Earth. And you would have seen the space wherever, whether it was in India, whether it was in the Middle East, you would have seen the Botany Bay on the gantry with its launch vehicle. Mm -hmm. And you would have seen the Allied forces closing in on Khan. And you would have realized that his empire is collapsing and the, the genetic Superman, their reign is over. And you would have learned that Khan was once ruler of a quarter of the world's population right. and he was escaping into space. And you would have spent five or ten minutes not giving us some you know text card but actually seeing this. Sure. The ship blasts off. It gets into space and then you cut to 300 years later where the pitted – Botany Bay is drifting through space and a ship that isn't the Enterprise. It's a new ship because we're in a new universe and a new timeline. Woohoo! Discovers the, the Botany Bay. And then we already know you do the ten you do the opening of Raiders of the Lost Ark, except instead of Indiana Jones, you give us Khan's story. Instead of getting an idol, he has to get to his damn spaceship to escape the forces that are trying to kill him. 
that's how you open a movie like that. Yeah. So the audience is like, oh, now I know who this motherfucker is. Right, the threat. We understand the threat. Yeah. And 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 I, I, I watch this and I'm thinking, how do these guys that get paid all this money not not understand this? Because they're always trying to reinvent – the, the idea is we're going we're gonna to make everything different. But none of what they're doing makes any sense at all. Like a transporter that beams you from your snub fighter to the Klingon homeworld. And then there, you put your people in torpedoes. Yeah. yeah. What? And then, and then the, the, the Peter Weller character, the head of Starfleet, he's building a super secret starship out, out uh, in the orbit of Jupiter, yet he's got a model of that super secret starship on his desk <laughs> at Starfleet headquarters. Like no one ever goes to him and goes, hey, man, what's that big splack model spaceship starship with the big hole in the top of the primary hole? What is that? Oh, yeah, man, that's my super secret dreadnought ship I'm building that no one knows about. I've been I've been funneling appropriations money out so I can build this thing so I can start a war with the Klingons. I mean, when you're when I'm as an audience member, when you show me this stuff, I'm like, fuck you I'm with you, man. Hey, man, how about you know, uh, back to discovery? How about them being on this secret ship that is going to, t- you know, win the tide of the war? with the Federation and they're jogging around this very secret ship with the name on their t-shirts. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? Come on, like, man. Did they get those t-shirts in the discovery gift shop? Exactly. Exa- well, that's the thing. I, I mean, mean and, and yes, I get it. Obviously. Exactly. Hey, you thought that was cool. Look at that. You wanted the t-shirt, go to the website, buy the t-shirt. I get it. I totally get it. But here's the, here's the thing within the context of the show, that means somebody thought the name discovery was funny. So let's equate it back to 300-year-old music. Oh, yeah, dude. And say disco. Like, like I'm, I'm like, I look at that and I go, okay, we get back to verisimilitude. I want to believe, I want to believe, I want to love Star Trek. It gives me no pleasure not to love Star Trek. I'm with you. But when I'm watching those kinds of choices being made, you know, Accurate. like, like wh- why are the collars on the uniforms asymmetrical? You know, what, it, it, I know it's a little thing, but I, I look at all these design things like, okay, so Lorca has a Tribble, and he's also got fortune cookies. Yeah. yeah. They've got them in the same office. The Tribble didn't get into the fortune cookies and right, start, uh, and reproduce. Start reproducing. Well, I'm assuming it's a dead Tribble. I'm assuming it's a dead Tribble. Was it no, because you hear, the, you hear the trilling of the Tribble half the time it shows up. They, oh, that's They make sure that oh, God. They, the trilling is, is happening all the time. And then also oh, – I'm going to go back and look at that. Like, Shame on me. Go on. And, and you know, what is the Discovery doing? We're at war. Like, like where, where are the war briefings? What is right. the Discovery doing? I mean, look, you go back and I hate to say it. It's not me going, oh, I want Star Trek to be the way it was. No, I want to see good storytelling. Right. That's what I want to see. And you know what? I've already seen a galaxy-wide conflict have a very incredible – This season six of Deep Space Nine is arguably the most successful season of modern Star Trek. It's serialized. It's serious. It's a galaxy-wide conflict. It's totally compelling, and it's got great secondary alien characters. You know, Gul Dukat, Damar. You know, General Martok, who's in the – Talk about mind-blowing Star Trek. If people remember the two-part Deep Space Nine episode uh, in Purgatory's Shadow and by Inferno's Light, when they reveal – spoiler alert 
that 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 you realize that that Bashir and Martok have been replaced right. by changelings, yep. and and they've been you you didn't know this. It was a switcheroo, absolutely, and it was a huge it was a huge revelation. And now it's like, oh no, Tyler's really Vok, and well, whatever their minds. But like, I'm like, if I'm talking about this weeks before it's revealed, now months before it's revealed, you are bad storytellers, and fuck you. I'm with you, son. I, uh... I mean, look at, look at the great storytelling we have on on TV. Breaking Bad, they'd open an episode, you'd find out, you know, Gus Fring's backstory. Or those the, the assassin, you'd go find out and, and why the, the the crippled mob boss who's suffered a stroke. You suddenly go meet him in his prime. I mean, it was. Why can't we get that caliber of storytelling on Discovery I on Star completely Trek? Completely agree. Why do we have to suffer? Yeah, man. No, and well, hell, I was really excited that Michelle Yeoh was going to be part of the show. Philippa Giorgio as a captain. All I've seen her do is fuck up, and the way they tripped into this Klingon conflict. Again, as you said, hack storytelling. I don't buy it. I don't buy the way they tripped in. I don't buy the fact that Jonathan Archer, 100 years earlier, was, or 150 years earlier, what, you know, was so involved face-to-face with the Klingons that there isn't a file in Starfleet headquarters post-Enterprise coming back home where Jonathan Archer was debriefed and this this is how the Klingons act. Further than that, broken bow, we had a Klingon on Earth. I mean, it's it's again the way they stumbled into this war. I don't buy it. And people were and people were yelling at me, go, well, and not yelling, but obviously disagreeing and go, well, you know, it was a hundred years earlier, and you know, it's possible that they lost track of this. And I'm like, no, I don't buy that. I, I they they were they were so advanced in those ways as far as communicating with other species. That I don't buy it. I, I think, again, they just tripped into this thing. And then when Saru is going to be, have to be a captain and has to look up the, the records of outstanding captains, yeah, it's cute that Giorgio's name is on there. But I'm like, I've yet to see any examples of this great captain other than her tromping around the desert and doing a real cliche Star Trek you know, symbol, Delta, to, to let – which makes which no was sense. The, which – Especially when the wind is right blowing in the middle in a of a place that's undergoing a, d- a drought, that it would have been blown. I mean, that Dumb. see that kind of cute stuff. And with with what's what what is with everyone's obsession with making giant spacefaring vessels flying ten feet over the over the? Uh, I mean, J.J. Cool. Abrams is an egregious. Uh, uh, not just J.J. Abrams, but even in Rogue One, why is a star destroyer hovering <laughs> over a city? Like. Really? Well, I'm, I'm, I, I mean, don't mind cool visual I, effects, but I hear what you're saying. I don't disagree with you. I mean, yeah, I, I look, I like that. But, you know, the whole point is that capital ships are meant to be in space. Right. That's why you have smaller ships like Tidarium shuttles. They they land on planets. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, man. I mean, star destroyers are and, – and the starships, their, their component parts are built on Earth and then they're shipped into right. space or they're rocketed into space or something. The idea that something's manufactured in space – has a sense of wonder to it. No question. No question. And and it, 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 it it's something that's been in established Star Trek lore well, and it, since Star Trek the motion picture. And it ties into real know, history and, as well in terms of if we are going to move beyond the moon, the idea is that we build a moon base and go to other planets from there, at least in theory with NASA. So again, there's that, you know, uh, uh, you know, through line from real pragmatic 
science that we're dealing with today and where it could go. I mean, so, yeah, I no, I completely agree with you as far as that. Well, you know, I mean, it, uh, it's on one hand, I, I listen to people bitch and moan online about the seventh season of Game of Thrones. Like, well, how could Danny fly in these dragons? You know, if these dragons have a wingspan of this far, how could they fly this fast? I mean, you know, when the when the army of the dead is surrounding Jon Snow north of the wall and there's the water and how fast can the raven fly to, you know, Dragonstone and blah, blah, blah. I mean, people are so mad about how long it takes people to travel around Westeros in the seventh season of, of, of Game of Thrones. And they're all up in arms. I'm like, I have to deal with 10 of those things on every episode of Discovery. Yeah, man. It, it's like, you know, a spore drive, like, you know, mitocellular or what? There's mushrooms everywhere. That's the. I mean, I understand. I watch that documentary on Netflix. I get it. Mushrooms are really interesting. Fungus is really interesting. Sure. It permeates the planet. But you know, to turn it into some spacefaring thing, and I think you know, there was uh, the thing about that tardigrade game that was online that came online in 2014. They somebody clearly came across that. They were looking up tardigrades. They came across that. And they're like, ooh, a propulsion system. And then somebody probably got stoned and saw Dune and went, oh yeah. You know, did not even the think of the Dune connection until you mentioned it. And as soon as you did, I'm like, holy shit, you're right. Yeah, spice navigators. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they fold space. Yes. We just folded space from X. Many machines on X. I mean, it's like. Okay, you know, I get it. You're folding, traveling without moving. You can go to anywhere in the universe. Like, okay, well, now now you've just made Star Trek magic. Yes. I mean, they've been making Star Trek magic since 2009. You know, you don't have to have line of sight beaming anymore. You can beam to a ship on the speed of light. Like, really? Fuck you. (laughs) Fuck off. Well, no, you can't. Or hologram technology is something they're still kind of figuring out in next generation era. And we've got the hologram communications. No, man, I, I'm with you. And again, you know what, though? I'll tell you. Wait a second. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you something about that. I don't mind something like Why? that because here, here's the thing. I think that, you know, people are like, well, we don't want when, – when, when I say that I want something to be redolent of the, the – the, we're watching a period piece from the future, as I've right. said. I don't expect the sets to look exactly the way they looked in – 1966. Agreed. No, I agree with that. However, you can build a new bridge. You look, there's a fucking window ever since 2009 on the bridge of the Enterprise. Like literally a window that you look out of. That's the view screen and then it gets covered over with whatever computerized gobbledygook. There was never a window on the Enterprise. It's a it's a it's an imaging system. Right. Based using sensor technology and all of this. And when you see a window that looks out to space, I'm like, oh, so any enemy that's going to, you know, send some <laughs> kinetic weapon your way, where are you going to fire Shatter it? Shatter the window. At the transparent aluminum window that everyone's looking out <laughs> transparent of? Transparent I mean, aluminum, absolutely. You know, it's so <laughs> stupid. Like, I look at it and I'm like, that, that was, that was a, an affectation starting in 2009 because, oh, that'd look cool. Yeah, it would look cool, and it's also stupid. They're killing me. Like, why would you? Do, it's already dumb enough that the bridge of the ship is on the top, you know, in the most vulnerable right, position. Right. But to have windows, I mean, I can't. Again, That's so funny, man. When I think about the great fantasy authors and science fiction authors that spend so much time world building, where everything there's terminology and there's all this stuff. Star Trek already did that for you, and the idea that you're going to go back and you're going to a plot point is going to be your propulsion system. Well, I mean, really? I don't know, man. Tell me the next generation episodes where 
the Ferengi one had episode the warp wave one also even yeah but you can also even argue too of the great one about how warp speed was damaging the universe okay but here's the thing that was an allegorical story that that goes back to our own you right. know our, our our own use of fossil Absolutely. fuels and our own use of things that damage our environment maybe we shouldn't use them the thing about star trek discovery is it's created all this gobbledygook that doesn't have any resonance beyond star trek itself beyond discovery itself you know the idea of this propulsion system they've spent so much time on this propulsion system i'm like you know what this doesn't mean anything because one it's dumb you you you've now created a propulsion system that can go anywhere in the universe at any time so just like the transporter that can magically beam to the klingon homeworld suddenly you don't need to travel anywhere why are you even using a ship if you can go anywhere you want make a pod uh, i mean you don't need the discovery that's what do we point. need starships for well, that's a you know why, why not just it's just I, I i look at this stuff and i'm like you're you're now getting in the way of your we we should be telling stories about people and experiences and allegorical tales about that are in, in, illuminating us that's why the one episode the um with the latin title the eighth episode right. of discovery when it was dealing with saru and this this alien life form that gave him peace which is again it goes back to the first season this side of paradise right. where Spock is hit by the spores. That was an interesting episode because it gives us character illumination, but that was only in like five minutes of that episode. And then of course the, 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 the planet Pavo, they give you this whole new, you know, the, or the planet Pandora, right. cause someone probably smoked a lot of reefer and watched avatar and said, <laughs> Hey, let's make a planet like that for discovery, man. You know, we'll have Iowa. It'll be like Iowa. We won't call it Iowa, but you know, the whole thing, it'll all be like, <laughs> it'll all be together. It'll be the force meets Iowa. Yeah. Have another hit. I mean, come on, really? But anyway, be that as it may, that's awesome. And then the next, the, the episode ends with, They've sent a signal out to the Klingons and the Federation. Next episode, everyone's coming to Pavo, and they never mention the Pavans again. Their message is not mentioned. Their race isn't mentioned. The Klingons show up. They're not mentioned. I mean, how are the Pavans going to feel that there was a big battle in their in their airspace, and the Federation just killed a bunch of Klingons? Don't you like? What if the Pavans were like, "Hey, man, you know uh, the Klingons are sentient beings too." Like, just because you've portrayed them as... And here's another thing. Here's another thing that I fucking hate these dumb motherfucking writers for doing. Can I just say, here's here's how stupid the writing staff is for Star Trek Go Discovery. Man. And you all are. If you're listening to this, <laughs> fuck you. And I'm going to tell you why. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you why. I'm not even drinking, and I'm going to tell them why. <clears throat> Star Trek does not have villains. Star Trek has antagonists right. and and the thing is when you looked at say when i was a kid and here's star trek writers uh, start recording now and let me explain something to you <laughs> in the first season episode arena we find out that the federation colony on cestus three has been there's been a sneak attack they've been brutally butchered everyone almost everyone is dead Federation colony wiped off the face of the planet. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, they're almost killed. Blown up exactly as they're Now, these around. guys, I, I mean, presumably by some bad motherfuckers. Yep. The Enterprise is in 
hot pursuit of the of this mysterious alien vessel. Kirk is out for blood, and then they 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 go in to uh, the Metron space. They're crossing the the border of another alien race. They don't know anything about the Metrons. The Metrons are like, listen, you primitive fuckheads. Uh, we don't we're not down with you guys killing each other and your whatever petty squabbles you have is not cool. And we don't, we're not going to allow the violence to take place. So what we're going to do is we're going to put the captain of, we find out the Gorn ship and we're going to take your captain Kirk and you're going to settle your differences between the two of you and whoever wins will destroy the rival ship and your problems will be solved. We have the famous battle between Kirk and the Gorn on the planet Kirk makes cannon, takes out the Gorn. He's there, and Kirk is about to deliver the death blow. And he stops himself. And he thinks, you know what? Maybe you thought you were defending yourselves. Maybe we were wrong. And and this whole situation, we don't understand what's going on. Maybe we encroached in your space, and you really did think you were defending yourselves. And instead of delivering the death blow, Kirk realizes that he could be in the wrong. Right. And at that moment, the Metron appears and says, huh, very interesting. You just displayed a quality of mercy. When we scanned your computer banks, we didn't see that you were capable of that. But you've now displayed to us that this enemy of yours who killed your people, destroyed your colony, would have killed you. You spared his life. Well, the Gorn wasn't a villain. The Gorn didn't deserve to die. The Gorns were antagonists. And, and at its very core, that's what Star Trek is all about. And these writers have diminished the Klingons. And, and in a way, they've been very racist and very specious to the Klingons. They've treated them like common mustache-twirling yeah. villains. Because they are bad writers. <laughs> I will say that. You are bad writers, Star Trek Discovery Writer Room. You're back in. You guys, you should all go back and start taking writing class 101 and go study Aristotelian platonics and dramatics and, and, and watch Star Trek and realize that you introduce a bunch of characters, a bunch of Klingons, and you treat them as mustache twirling villains. Un, you know, uh, you even have Laurel's people are, are murdered by by Cole. Right. You know, they're they're just what was that even about? Right. And and it, it requires intelligence and and creativity and thoughtfulness. The best villains are the villains. Actually, Star Trek doesn't remember. This is, should be the Burnett axiom. There are no villains in Star Trek. There are just antagonists. Right. And that's what made Star Trek great. Yes. You know, and and these people have forgotten it. And the fact that they introduce these Klingon characters in this sarcophagus ship and they just murder them. And you know, the, ship. the Harry Mudd episode, again, the Harry Mudd episode where he becomes a sadistic murderer. And then, oh, wait, here's your here's your wife to be in your rich husband. You know, it's like, oh, the, the children of privilege get to get bought out of their crimes. You know, sure. well, you know he point. might have taken over the ship and tried to kill us all. But, hey, if you have enough money, 
you don't have to have justice. You, we'll, we'll get you out of it. You know what? Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you, writing staff. <clears throat> Fuck you for doing that. I, because what are you saying? This is Star Trek. These people are so cynical and they're such bad writers that they've taken something and they've, they've fundamentally changed it all the way down to its tardigrade altered DNA. So they've altered Star Trek and turned, in, turned it into something that is disturbingly hostile and bad. <laughs> and and, and that's, that's the real shame of Star Trek Discovery. And all these people are like, well, what does it matter? I really liked it. <laughs> yeah, you really liked it? That's, I, I don't begrudge you for really liking it. But that's because you haven't picked up a fucking book in two years other than – you know, whether it's Harry Potter or Fifty Shades of Grey, go back and read some real science fiction. Go back and read some, not just science fiction, go back and read some classic literature. Sure. Read some great storytelling. You know, go back and read the classics and, and understand that the people who originally wrote Star Trek were novelists and playwrights. Right. They were real writers that worked in multiple mediums, that lived lives. They weren't just part of TV writers' rooms going from one show to the next. I mean, the, 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 it's so maddening to watch a show that is so dumbed down that that. And now, you know, I've probably lost half. Your <laughs> like, no, get no, off no. that old man. Get off my lawn. Look, man, I want Star Trek Discovery to be great. But I, I want real writers who, who know how to write really great stories and compelling drama. I want to be able to feel the way. I feel about Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad or Mad Men. I want that to be – that's the baseline of what Star Trek should be. Agreed. The baseline. Absolutely, man. But it's not. No. It's not. No, I understand. Well, there's a few things I want to pick on that – and not pick on, but to talk to you about and expand a little bit more. um, First of all, the planet from Episode 8, and I – you know, I'm a knucklehead. I always forget the names of it. Pavo. Okay. Planet Pavo. Don't you think Pavo likely will be the way – if they are to get back to – whatever universe uh, Discovery was in prior to Where Are We Now, I think Pavo's going to obviously play a role in that. Would you agree? Uh, uh, maybe. You'd think so. but Because uh, it is weird that the they last... were left alone after being so important in Episode Eight. Again, if the shotgun's on the wall, are you going to use it? It has this communications beacon. They seem to be, if not... Spore based, like the microbes they're using to travel around. I, you know what? I think you've already made connections that are more in advance of what the Star Trek. Here's the problem: <laughs> the way the the way television. You know, one of the producers was interviewed, like, "Oh, well, we have these big gangbangs in the writers' room." Yeah, I know. We have to watch the results of them every right. week. I feel like I'm watching the results of a of a bukkake scene it's, and yeah, it's whatever a big, porn it's a big thing white, I was white, watching. It's a whiteboard that has all these ideas, and like you said, it's and, and in fact on your Collider reviews as well, you guys have all said the same thing. It's like they're shoving too much in these 45 minutes, and it's like, okay, just focus on a couple of these things, and you might have a coherent story. But again, it's like, okay, why is this being? Dis, you know, like suddenly thrown away, and they keep they kept telling us that this was going to be a fifteen part story as opposed to more episodic, which is bullshit because we've had things like which I happen to like the seventh episode, the the time loop episode, and I agree with you. I don't like how Harry Mudd has gone from con man to killer, 
but at least uh, you know. Well, also, I mean, here's here's my thing about that episode. You know, we've seen time loop episodes. Sure. Well, we saw one in Next Generation twenty five fucking Absolutely, years ago. Man. We've also we've also seen them since then in shows like Buffy, right. or in X Files, right. and they were all done well. Now, one of the interesting things about time loop episodes is watching our characters figure out that they're one in a time right. loop and two figuring out clever ways to get themselves out of that Absolutely. time loop. Well, that's not what happened in that episode. You know, Stamets knew and kept saying, don't you idiots know that we're in a time loop? And he would show up as like a Dewey machina right. and going, you got to figure this shit out. And because our characters are too dumb to figure it out for themselves. But Stamets, with his tardigrade DNA, has become the god in the machine. Absolutely, yes. The ghost of the machine, whatever. And he just shows up and goes, hey, man, I exist on different planes of time. So you don't have to be smart. Let me just help you along. And you never actually saw them do any sleuthing to figure out that they were in a time loop. It was just an excuse to show Harry Mudd, well, I killed Lorca 53 times. Cut to the Captain Lorca murder montage. Right. Where we right. literally watch Harry Mudd murdering Lorca a bunch Absolutely. of times. Like, I'm like, I'm watching this going, why am I watching this? It, it, what is the point of a scene like a murder montage? Am I supposed to hate Harry Mudd now for doing this? Am I supposed to enjoy watching Jason Isaacs die a number of times? The, what they're doing is they've, sh- they've decided to show me in a Star Trek episode. They've decided to show me and take pleasure in watching one of the principal characters get murdered over and over again, which, by the way, they're spending money on visual effects every time, Uh, rather than watch our characters do something smart, interesting, and uh, intelligent (laughs) that is, in a way, aspirational because it shows our characters being smart. And Here's here's another thing I've hated about 2009 on. Star Trek used to be about the best of the best of humanity. Agreed. That at its at its core, whether the crew was squabbling or not, we could always aspire. If you're going to be out pushing the boundaries of the final frontier, you need to be the best of the best. You're in the top. You're you're in the top one percent, not because of your income level, but because you're the best of right. the best people yep. that humanity or whatever alien, other alien species has to offer. And since 2009, all we do is watch a bunch of fuck-ups. Spock's emotional, Kirk's bored. They just do stupid shit all the time. And, and, you know, again, I go back, writers, take note. When you're defining a character, you take the Indiana Jones route or the John McClane in Die Hard route, and you show guys and people, men or women, that are good at their jobs, but they're not infallible. And situations can get the best of them, but they have the wherewithal to prevail because they're heroes. Now, all the people that we're watching, they're all fucking idiots (laughs) that do stupid. They do stupid things constantly on the show that makes you want to go, fuck you, you dumbass. I don't care if you live or die. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it's 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 like, oh, you're going to conveniently write. I think we should. Somebody was like, you know what? I read this article on BuzzFeed about PTSD. We should address that in oh a five minute segment in one episode of Star Trek, you know, uh, 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 Discovery. We'll do it in episode nine. He can have a flashback to being tortured right. by the Klingons or in whatever, you know, Tyler's case is 
having his memories, his real Klingon memories transferred into a human right. body by his lover. Right. And, you know, it's whatever. It turned Manchurian candidate. I don't care what it is. <laughs> but you're telling me that suddenly these two characters that are on a, a, a Klingon ship, because anybody can just walk onto a Klingon oh, ship and turn on scanners. Oh, my God. Absolutely. I mean, all this, it was so, the, I mean, it's so dumb. But then you're watching him have a PTSD uh, uh, episode because right. they want like, really? I mean, really? Are you kidding me? Oh, because he saw his former lover. You know what? Let me tell you something. I don't care if it was, uh, as they said in the movie Aliens, it doesn't matter if if it's Octurian, baby. You know, if you're having a sex scene, if you're if you're mentally thinking about having sex with a Klingon, that's got to be a turn on in some way because I'd be like, oh, all right, that's cool. That's some <laughs> that's some Pornhub action. That's some that's some furry action. I get it. She was hot or naked Klingon breasts. I mean, I wasn't a you know fan. even that e- even that scene. If you want to look at something that's allegorical, that was in a way. Uh, 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 okay, he's kind of Middle Eastern, but it's an interspecies romance, right. some Mandingo stuff or sure. whatever. It was to me. I watched <laughs> that. And I'm like, wow, this is borderline racist. This is like trying to make me disgusted watching a Klingon woman and a human being have sex. I'm supposed to think it's really rapey or whatever. Well, we've already seen Tom Paris and Bellana. Yeah, you're right. We've already seen we've already seen Kalar and you're Worf right. or Jadzia. How about how about for Jadzia? I mean, if the writers on Star Trek even knew their Star Trek, they'd be like, oh, you know what? When Worf was married to a trill, that means he's actually having a three way every time he has sex because <laughs> he's having sex with. He's having sex with the symbiote, and he's having sex with the human That's host at the Absolutely. same time. That's hilarious. I mean, and it, it, it's like, you know, we've already seen that, and, and it's treated the way it should be treated as a matter-of-fact thing. That's why I have to say I really enjoyed the uh, first male uh, kiss in Star Trek oh, history yeah, because I, I, was it was tender, yes. it was romantic, Absolutely. it was – it was done in a in a great way, and I the the, the bond that those characters have is earned, and that is one of the good things about that the, the their dynamic and the fact that that relationship is being allowed to be expressed. I absolutely agree with that. I got to be honest, the Klingon sex scene ridiculously gratuitous. I didn't need to see as as Jason Inman said as well online. And I completely agreed with them. I didn't need to see Klingon boobs. They could have done that without showing that. And much like Tilly, well, it was also, much like Tilly but, saying fuck that, as well. By the way, it, totally. I mean, and you know what it was? It was it was exploitation. Right. It's barbet. It's bar it, it, trivia. It's like, oh, when's the first time someone dropped an f bomb monster? Or at least that's Tilly's thing. And the same with the Klingon boobs. When do we first see Klingon nudity? All right, we got our bar answer. Move on. And it was it was off. done. You know what? It was some again. Someone in the writers' room. Yeah, wouldn't it be cute? Probably Akiva Goldsman was like, "Ooh, wouldn't that be edgy and cool?" No, what's really edgy and cool is when you address interesting social issues in a time when you can't address them uh, overtly right. because you know that's what made Star Trek well, interesting. That's made science oh, fiction. We're not in allowed. General to- interesting is those kinds of allegories. Absolutely, man. You know, in the original Star Trek, we're going to talk about. The Vietnam War in an episode called The Private yep. Little War, where we're, we're, you know, in a, in a roundabout way, or we're going to address racism Let or that classism. Be your last battlefield, in, in, absolutely. Less in Next Generation, the, the great episode, The Outcast, that had a genderless yes. society, yes. and they had 
they had aliens. This is why it always bothered me. I've even read I've I've read um, gay authors who don't like this episode, The Outcast, oh, that's and, uh, and because it's not you know it's not whatever. because it was it too allegorical and not you real enough for them. Is that why? Or the fact that the character was actually played by a female actress as, a pl- uh, as opposed to a male actor to make to make I it see. a little bit more palatable. Sure. sure. And I'm like, uh, you know, those are definitely valid sure. criticisms because you don't get the social order you want right now. But, you know, society has been evolving and changing and you have to go back and look at the outcast. And in the very best Star Trek tradition, it was doing something very absolute at the time Absolutely. for television. And in an allegorical fashion that wasn't beating you over the head. I mean, look, I'm sure Star Trek Discovery lost a great, you know, people who've never thought of Sarek and Amanda's relationship as being an interspecies relationship. I'm sure that if you ask some of these people, they're like, well, let me just tell you, I I don't mind if Sarek has a nice, lovely uh, female woman as his companion, but I'm not going to watch two homosexuals on the engineering deck of the Discovery Kiss. You know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it's it's just the, the same thing. It's you're going to get that. Sure. I mean, we're we're so far beyond. Look, I'm I'm happy to see the depiction of all kinds of couplings in sure. space. I mean, I remember, I remember, uh, I I had a book I got when I was like in the seventh grade from the Sci-Fi Book Club. I, I want to say it was called Future Love, and it had some really sexy embryo that was kind of a hot woman as well on the cover of the book and it was about depictions of of sexuality in the sure. future <laughs> and uh the rate we're going with all this, this and i was like you know when i was in the seventh grade that was some hot sure, stuff sure. you know what Hilarious. i'm saying it, it aided me in my imagination <laughs> and my journeys into my imagination but um and other physical oh, yeah. journeys as well but but you know it's 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 it, it's like if you're gonna if you're gonna do this stuff what I expect of Star Trek is I want the highest caliber writing, and I feel that we're right. getting shortchanged. The show is handsomely made. Yes. Uh, it's it's uh, if the actors are given decent scripts, there's a lot. I mean, I really like a lot of the performances. There's been a lot of good moments. Agreed. A lot of good moments, you know, in a sea of ridiculousness. Right, writing and, and bad um, plots, and just because we say so, storytelling rather than. No, give us some logic behind some of these actions. Absolutely, man. Right. And, and the fact that they're, they, they're telling us, first of all, the, the laws, Star Trek is always, I mean, all science fiction, fantasy, and horror bends the laws of <laughs> physics. You can't expect it. You, no one's Stanley Kubrick. You know, the, the one mistake in 2001 is that the liquid in the straw goes down because of gravity and Kubrick said, Oh, that was a mistake. It shouldn't have gone down. There was no gravity. Okay, buddy. I'll, uh, he's my favorite director. I understand, but that's because of his attention to sure. detail, but star Trek, every episode of discovery just piles on. Like I never doubted. Again, I go back to various verisimilitude, mm-hmm. the transporter. They never came out and said exactly how it all worked, but in the stories that were being told, clearly you had to have line of sight beaming, like the, the, you had to be in geosynchronous orbit somewhere, right. and it, it there was a certain uh, uh, distance that the transporter could only right. work in, and it wasn't infallible. And the the problems that they had with it, even when they 
duplicated people because of their pattern buffers, which they did it in the enemy within, and then they did it. There was two Rikers in the next right. generation because of a transporter Absolutely. accident. I believed in that technology. The writers did it. They did not make the transporters seem magic. The way the way they gave it limitations and the way it had rules made me believe it. Well, the fact that the discovery can go anywhere in the universe. That's not a rule and that's not good storytelling. That's just magical gobbledygook right. that they have created that has no basis. I, I, don't, I don't believe in it. I don't believe in it, not because I'm old and not because I expect Star Trek to be a certain way. I don't believe in it because it has no basis in reality. It's magic. And they've made it sound like, well, you know, the, this mitocellular, the fungal network that exists all throughout the universe. Yeah, because, you know, there's all that fungus in space where ships travel. I mean, you know, it's, 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 I can believe if you're talking about the Iconian gateways or something, or the preservers sure. use that cellular network to travel between planets. That I could believe in. Or the, or the Borg's but, uh, series of wormhole. You know, mapping. Yes, transwarp conduits. Right. You know, I can believe that. I can believe that in contact, you know, when Jodie Foster goes to Uh Vega, uh, even the Vegans are like, well, you know, we didn't build these conduits. They've been here for billions of years. We're just using them. I'm like, okay, I'll believe that. But I'm not going to believe a spore drive where the discovery spins like a gyroscope (laughs) and can wind up wherever it, it needs to go. You know, and of course we have to do 133 jumps. Tell me you didn't think about the Battlestar Galactica episode 33, where they had to jump every right. 33 well, minutes they, to get away from the Cylons. I mean, no, you're, and we have to fig, figure out the 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 cloaking technology. Like, yeah, I mean, that wasn't even. It was so much cooler when Kirk had to steal a cloaking absolutely. device off of a Romulan ship and he had to be surgically altered to look like a Romulan to walk around in depths of a Romulan ship as opposed to the Iron Man uh, suit that they had to wear to pretend to be Klingons from a sensor standpoint but meanwhile they're just walking around and again with those really loud sensors okay it's engaging (laughs) I hope Klingons can't hear me right now but yeah the the technology is starting to work right now Jesus Christ I mean all of that stuff is why is it that I believe in Game of Thrones, when a, a girl has no face, why do I believe that Arya Stark can put on anyone's face? Why is that more believable to me? Well, because they spent a whole season setting it up. You know, and there's magic and dragons, but even the magic in Game of Thrones is far more believable than whatever is going on in Star Trek Discovery. Verisimilitude. No, you're 100% right. And, uh, yeah, it's, that's the, that is the biggest glaring problem with it again hack storytelling because we say so that's why it works that's why it makes sense that's why philip giorgio can be a great captain and yet stumble into this conflict in in a very very stupid way and and you know Uh, it just yeah man well and again the other thing that bothered me from the start was cbs only giving people that first part of the two-part premiere which I appreciate as a prologue, Finding, you know, setting up Michael's, you know, story, that's fine. But, and I get, obviously, they want to, you know, here's a taste. If you want more, you got to come here and you got to pay and everything. But good news, you can, if you want, you could even just do the week free trial and get the second episode. But I'm like, no, man, tell the prologue. And that was a good holy shit cliffhanger of, okay, our protagonist has just been, 
disbarred, discredited, whatever, you know, discommend, you know, the discommendation, the tribunal, she is now a prisoner. Well, where the fuck is this going to lead? That would have been fine. And I know so many people, and I know their numbers are great in terms of the people that obviously have jumped on. But I know a lot of people that were like, okay, I'm really confused by this first half of a pilot that was about to end with, okay, finally, we're going to see some spaceships getting together. No, you're not. See you later. You want to come back? Okay, well, you're going to have to pay to see it. And I have a lot of friends that were Star Trek fans. They're like, I'm not going to pay for that. You know, and then they just kind of abandoned the show right there. So, I, you know, well, I don't know if you've had that it, experience with Trek fans that you know. Well, you know what's funny? I mean, I think back, and I, I think back to a movie that I have great big love for, probably more love than I should, even though one best picture, Gladiator. Sure. All right? Maximus Decimus Meridius, you know, Felix Legions, he was a commander. He was he worked for uh, Marcus Aurelius, mm-hmm. you know, the Caesar. Yep. And he gets drummed out of his army and ends up becoming a slave right. and having an odyssey. Well, why not do that with Michael Burnham? Why not spend a couple of episodes showing her dis- discommendation and show her, like, what, what happened to Worf? Show her what, what is her life like living in that shithole sure. that, that everything she's lived for. And let's let's see some dimensionality. Let's see two or three episodes where, you know, she gets debriefed and she gets humiliated sure. and she gets – why not do that? You know, and, and make it her, her redemption story. Uh, I, I mean, any writers worth their salt would have done that. I agree. You know, the, it, you know, it, 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 Burnham should have been the Walter White. You know, Walter White. The, the Breaking Bad was the story about a good man who becomes a protagonist, becoming an antagonist. Exactly what I was expecting well, from the show. But go on. Well, yeah. I mean, now we 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 see a character who is 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 really a protagonist, but unfortunately, she's been cast as the antagonist because of. Of, of bad decisions she made and and let's watch her climb her way back up and tell that story in the Star Trek universe. That would have been really interesting and that's something we've never seen in Star Trek right. before. And and if they gave that time, but immediately because everyone in the universe can apparently now fly wherever they want to go in a shuttle in no time at all. I mean, you know, people talk about how long it takes Danny to fly her dragons around Westeros. Well, how long does it take to get anywhere in the Star Trek universe? Well, apparently five fucking minutes. And if you're in the Discovery, it takes even less right. time because you can jump anywhere in the cosmos you want. Well, that's interesting. That makes for good drama. Another wrinkle I want to talk about is uh, Sarek. And also, man, I'm sorry. It still bothers me that they have shoehorned this, hey, she's Spock's adopted sister. Ooh. I'm, I'm sorry. As I said to others Leading up to this conversation, Riker did not have to be Kirk's grandson to be interesting. Picard did not have to be, you know, uh, McCoy's uh, grandson. I mean, all this stuff. And again, same can go for any women that you want as far as future Star Trek relations. In fact, somebody asked me, would it have been better if they had, you know, maybe put more ties on some of the other future stories? And my answer is no, of course not. You don't need that. And further, is Sarek literally the only Vulcan that believes in the human, you know, potential. I don't like that. It's almost saying like Martin Luther King was the only civil rights leader. It, it just, it's, it, it well, makes, no, it, as it, you it, said uh, on a couple Collider episodes, it makes the universe smaller. And I would have loved to have seen a different Vulcan mentor to Michael so that we could have perhaps in future 
books or comics or even within the television series themselves, a conversation between Sarek and another like-minded Vulcan that sees the potential in humans. Again, it's, it's empty fan service, and I've yet to see the reason why this character needs to be connected to Spock other than, oh, isn't that cool? Well, yeah, I, that's about the level of writing. Yeah. And that, that's, what I, that's what I can't stand. I can't stand, the uh, again, the, the – and I uh, quite, quite frankly, I blame uh, – look, I'll lay the, the, the blame of all of this on – Yeah, why? Goals. Tell me – yeah, tell because me that. I'll, Explain that because, I mean, I, I, I keep wanting to blame Alex Kurtzman because he's coming from Bad Robot and impressing – Oh, I'll blame – yeah, I'll blame Alex Kurtzman too. I'll blame, <laughs> look, Kirsten Beyer, who wrote Episode 8. Is a great Star Trek Absolutely. novelist. Absolutely, Voyager, uh, great and, Voyager novels, no question. And her no- Voyager novels are great, and she follows in the footsteps of Diane Duane, who worked on the first season of Next Generation. She wrote the episode where no one has gone before, which took a lot of concepts from her novel, The Wounded yep. Sky, which also coincidentally dealt with a new propulsion system. <laughs> That's true. So, hey, you know, everything old's new again. Those those wacky Star Trek Discovery writers, I mean, they're, they're, they're coming up with things that – the funny thing is, is that when they're doing things that have been done better 25 years ago, that's what bothers me. I'm like, did anyone ever – but I'm sure, I'm sure the first time someone found out that Kirsten Beyer was a Star Trek novelist, everybody was like poo-pooing her. When what they should have done is gone back and read her words and realized she should be running the writer's room. But um, that didn't happen because I'm sure Akiva Goldsman, whenever he needs to, pulls out that Oscar and puts it in the middle of the table and says, we're doing what so I he's say. the real showrunner? It's not the people – like I've been watching these After Trek episodes. We could talk about that. Oh, I don't know. Well. I mean, I you know, I, I think there's there's Aaron the, – the, 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 Yeah, I forget his uh, – Brian, Brian Fuller's former – Compatriots, yes. uh, those people are, are and and you know like Kurtzman and here's the thing, there's a lot of money in being the head writer of a show. Nobody wants to give up that position. Right. Um, so the people that are going to be, I, I mean, how do you think Brian Fuller must feel every oh, week? God. His name is on I that know, show. Man. No lie. And again, you've actually are they available online? Are his original outlines available online? No. Okay. <laughs> nor will they ever. Nor nor will they I, ever. I be. wouldn't be surprised. And good for you for however by hook or by crook. If I could put a prisoner ref- reference in there, however you you managed yeah. to get access to him. Nice going because I'll never. I'll never. I, tell. That's completely fair, dude. I totally understand. But yeah, it, it, but but on. there's it's it's very interesting because um, the dialogue in uh, Fuller's original episode, you know, it's it's it hews close to the story, but. The dialogue just between the Starfleet officers is so much better. It, they're just so much smarter, and they work together. They work uh, so much better as stories. Okay. And then the original thirteen episode outlines. I think it's actually missing episode six or something. But um, you know, there are these really long, very detailed outlines of of the, the first season, and and it there's elements that have survived, sure. but not not in any. It, it's unfortunate. Were there standalone episodes um, like we've seen? Where you have the flashback with the Sarek and Michael relationship, or the time loop. There's some, there's, there's some elements of that, but it's, it's all very, very different. And you know, it's really interesting when it comes to like Brian Fuller. I'm a huge fan of Hannibal. 
his series Hannibal. And what was interesting about Hannibal is that Hannibal, of course, was based on four Thomas Harris mm-hmm. novels. You've got the Red Dragon, Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal, and Hannibal yep. Rising. You then have the movie adaptations. There's two versions of right. Red Dragon. Um, then you have Sansa Lambs, Hannibal, and Hannibal right. Rising were all made as movies. So this was well-trodden <clears throat> mythology. And then Brian Fuller came along and sort of reworked that familiar mythology and made the show something much more mythic and much more nightmarish and took it in a really unique and interesting direction, but it was still recognizably the subject matter. And and I think that's what he would have done with the show. With he discovery. would have taken it in a very Yeah, but he wouldn't have spent time, you know, the, the tardigrade it would it was more about terraforming and, and things ah, like that. Interesting. There, there there wouldn't be a lot of this wait, what? What's going on? You know, there wouldn't be a lot of uh, a lot of that because if you watch the work his work on Hannibal and American Gods and and Brian Fuller, he's a very um, hands-on producer. Sure. Like he obviously would deal with the costumes, like the Star Trek Discovery costumes. Like really, who thought this yeah, was no a good shit. idea? I don't, again, why does it look like the JJ verse? Uh, other than again, the basic aesthetic of well, the likelihood is more of the mainstream audience probably has seen the mo- the the three two thousand nine and beyond movies, uh, leading with uh, or ending with beyond. And so maybe that's why, from an aesthetic stamp of that basic aesthetic, but it it yeah, I mean again, that is the kind of concrete question that I would like answered. That likely we will never get the right answer about that. Well, the interesting thing is you have to tr- you have to treat Star Trek again. It is a period piece just in the future. Right. So you don't need to have the sets look like sure. the big, you know, jelly bean right. buttons they had in 1966. Right. You can still update all of that tech. But you can still make it look redolent right. of the well, classics. Like, like in like, the first two movies where they pretty much had, I mean, a slightly updated uniforms, but they look like Kirk Spock uniforms. You know, gold and blue and everything and red. Okay, fine. You know, I don't know. Right. I mean, they updated and, and also, you know, the Enterprise was incredibly updated. The bridge was, was very modern looking. Even even today, the motion picture bridge is very elegant. Um, utilitarian, but well, elegant. but also and, they did put it in the story of the motion picture in '79 that they were refitting the Enterprise. I mean, that was part of the story, so, right? Jim, this isn't your old ship. This is a new Enterprise. You don't understand what's going on here. That's why Decker was necessary. And see, I don't, I don't, I don't sure. mind all that stuff. But then when you make this big spacious bridge, it's still a spaceship. What's all the wasted space? <laughs> you know, you look at all this stuff like these giant rooms and things. I'm like, you know, I. Really, I mean, these are nitpicky things, but it all it all goes back down to verisimilitude. Like when I'm watching Game of Thrones, I never look at those those whether you're at Dragonstone or whether you're in King's Landing, you never think to yourself, "Well, this couldn't exist." You believe it, you know, because the production design, everything. The problem with Star Trek Discovery is it it looks like a hundred people waiting. Yes, yes. There's no, and it, none of it, not one shred of it looks like it has any lineage to the rest of the Star Trek universe. absolutely. And again, that maddening Don't, question, you're doing this in the Prime Universe, give us the proof of that, but go on. Why call a Klingon battlecruiser? You know, at the Battle of the Binary Stars, there's not one Constitution-class ship. That's hilarious. 
Why yeah, not? Oh no shit. Well, for instance, let's get back to the like. If you're going to name check, if you're going to name check Robert April from an animated series episode, awesome, but go on. Throw me a throw no me a shit. bone. I mean, I've heard that. I have heard that we are going to see the actual Enterprise. Yeah, I've heard that too. It's been. It's it's a new design. They've redesigned it yet again. But I've heard that we're going to see the Enterprise in in I guess the last episode. Well, that would make but, sense. You know, and unfortunately, yeah, again, convenient. I want to read David Max novel as well that apparently deals more where we see Pike's Enterprise and even possibly, and I haven't read it yet. Right. And I have to say that I I, I have huge, great big love for Yes, and other great Star Trek novels. Um, Agreed. His his Star Trek Destiny trilogy um, is is not only great just general science fiction, it's fantastic Star Trek. Uh, creates an amazing alien race. It deals with a, a massive invasion by the Borg. It ties together in the post-Dominion War continuity. Mm-hmm. Everybody from Esri Dax, who has a command forced yep. on her. I mean, and you read these books and you're like, I'm like, this, David Mack, he wrote a great uh, Mirror Universe duology that's incredible. Uh, and, and he wrote a, a trilogy about basically Data's family that's great. And, you know, you read a David Max Star Trek novel. Um, he's got a new Titan novel, Riker's yes. Man, coming out in two weeks, which I can't wait to read. You read you read a David Max Star Trek novel, and you're like, this guy gets it. I mean, he totally understands the Star Trek universe. I mean, and, and I, you know, I grew up reading, there was a, a Star Trek fanzine called The Best of Trek, which I never ever saw an issue of, but I bought their books they would put out these these books, the best, yeah, of, yeah, yeah. the best yeah. of Trek, and the best of Trek were just a, they were a book books of essays that were written by Star Trek fans about every little minute sure. detail in the yes, Star Trek yes. universe, you know things about Spock's plight in the universe, or there was um there was a uh, Leslie God now I'm drawing a blank on his or her last name I never knew if never knew if it was a girl sure. or a guy, but. All with these columns, Star Trek Mysteries Solved, where it would go into these it, this incredible detail about the inconsistencies in the Star Trek universe and 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 trying to explain it away like what's the difference between the United Earth Space Probe Agency and the United Federation Hilarious. of Planets? When did one become the other? You know, and all that and and it got into all this stuff and it, it was great. And so I grew up reading that and pouring over the technical manuals, the B. Joe uh, Trimble's Concordance. And in 1980, when the motion picture came out, this great book, the Star Trek space flight chronology came out. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is amazing. And and people had spent all this time putting in this, creating this lineage in the passage of time and figuring out Star Trek design. I mean, starship design. I mean, I can't even stand the design of the, the, the Federation starships. I'm like, why are the warp nacelles that long? <laughs> well, because the producers told John Eves to draw them that way. I mean, like, you know, one of the great joys in my life as a Star Trek fan was when Star Trek The Motion Picture came out and you saw the refit Enterprise, which was amazing. Yep. It was amazing. And and you you finally understood the internal configuration. You understood, oh, where the impulse engines were and how they fed into the warp yes. drive. And you understood. And then there was that beautiful cutaway poster of yeah. the Enterprise. And it was like, oh, so all of the people, whether it was Andy Probert or Mike Miner, all the designers and artists working on Star Trek The Motion Picture, figured it all out. 
they made it all work. They're like, oh, all of this internal structure, it all they could they could answer how it all works, like where everything was. And and that's verisimilitude. And for my own imagination, I was like, wow, these people really cared. Right. They really cared. And as a as a viewer and an audience member, my imagination was sparked because my investment into Star Trek was even even greater because I knew that the show creators knew what they were doing. And they were showing me they were not insulting my intelligence the way the last season of Lost did or <laughs> Alias did after SD6 was destroyed. You know, that these writers actually thought about what they were writing instead of tossing it off because they had to meet a deadline. I mean, why wasn't Star Trek Discovery well plotted from the get-go? They certainly had enough production no time shit. after it being shut down and starting yes. up again. I, I mean, it's like, look at look – at, why am I not seeing a tightly plotted show like Breaking Bad? Because they don't take Star Trek seriously. It's Star Trek. We don't have to take it seriously. Again, fuck you. <laughs> yes, you do. Yes, you do. You do. I mean, show me some real creativity. I agree, man. Show me some real A-list writing. Star Trek should be the best written show on exactly. television. They've certainly had enough time to see how to write a great Star Trek episode. Well, and again, we've got 51 years of, you know, 700 or so episodes of previous syndicated and, and network Star Trek television to, to call and, it. And we're admittedly into the second decade of the golden age of TV. Amen, son. Yep. You know, that began with things like The West yep. Wing and The Sopranos and the HBO. And Breaking Bad. Whether it's The Wire or whether it's Breaking Bad or whether it's Mad Men or whether it's, you know, Walking well, Dead. I can't say House of Cards anymore. But, you know, we're getting such great television why is it that Star Trek is serving up such goddamn mediocrity? No, and you know, that was really the hope when they announced all this, that finally Star Trek will once again regain its position as important science fiction. And obviously, you know, fans will obviously say Star Wars is more fantasy than science fiction, and that's all fair. But again, it's, yeah, no, it should be there. Let me ask you another stupid thing. Why is it significant? Or another thing that I hope, the, I hope they'll touch on, but I have a feeling they're probably not going to. The significance of the Klingons not wanting to keep their dead and then Takuvma coming and saying, no, it's important that we reclaim our, our warriors and stuff like that. And maybe it was already explained in the Klingon gobbledygook and I just wasn't paying attention to the subtitles. But that seems to have been abandoned. And and you know yeah no I mean and you know what's so funny when you think about the first episode in the first season a lot of people look the first season of Next Generation and the second season too because they were dealing Flunky with the writers strike certainly were not uh, uh, pinnacles of great television agree however if you watch one of the best episodes of the first season of TNG is Heart of Glory which is where they find these three. They find an old Klingon ship, and these three Klingons come on board and try and tempt right. Worf. Yes, and you learn about 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 Klingons and and Vaughn Armstrong, who later went on to play a lot of different roles, and including Admiral Forrest in the Enterprise. The Enterprise. Sure. He, he plays um, he plays one of the Klingons, and the speeches and the and the, and the talks that they give and the things that they say. The when Vaughn Armstrong's like, yeah, do you feel the, like the burning and the stirring of your Klingon blood? And you're like, wow, a first season Next Generation episode did Klingons way better than nine episodes <laughs> of Discovery has. <laughs> and and it's, it's, it's not me going, oh, I only like the thing the way the, 
you know, the way I like Star Trek. No, I don't. I don't even like the way that Klingons were turned into space Vikings in Next Generation. It wasn't until Deep Space Nine when they pulled back and you got to see nuanced characters like John Colicos' core coming oh back. God, or, yes. But you really got to see, you know, Martok yes. and, and, and uh, Robert O'Reilly's uh, Gowron yes. and all that stuff. And, and Gowron's uh, great character arc of just wanting the throne uh, or becoming chancellor and then forging a friendship with Worf, then it changing and him being so selfish and arrogant and his abuse of Martok. Man, I'll tell you, one of my best moments of uh, the uh, convention in, in San Diego this year was running into J.G. Hertzler and meeting him for the first time and, and gushing over how much I really loved his character arc and how well he executed it and his other roles in in uh, in Star Trek in general, whether it was Enterprise or that Far Beyond the Stars pulp, you know, episode and everything. No, absolutely, man. And Ron Moore did so much for the Klingons at any time he was writing a Star Trek script. And yeah, man, oh, God, Kor's whole character arc. And going from, you know, Errand of Mercy, which is an interesting, fun character, but man, just so much more dimension as he would appear in Deep Space Nine and really, God, and it's really cool that Colacos, before he passed away, got to have such a meaty role and really relish it and bring out the great Shakespearean elements of the Klingon persona. Yeah, and, and I think that that's what, when you're, when you're, there, there was such depth yes. brought to the Klingons over the course of, of modern Star Trek. When you go back and they've basically been turned into, you know, savages out of a, out of a, I don't know, a 40s serial. I mean, no they, shit. They, yeah, you're right, man. They, it is. They really it's like the Japanese in bad cliffhanger serials when we were in the midst of World War II, and they were just portrayed as kind of godless devils that were capable of eating, you know, cannibalism and and all the really bad base things you can think of with human beings. Absolutely, man. Well, it's it, yeah, it's it's so bad. The portrayal of the Klingons is it, to me, it's it's borderline yeah. offensive yeah. in a way because because it's 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 racial stereotypes. They're 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 basically one step away from from you know having spears right. and wearing Cannibals. wearing uh, bones sure. around their necks and and especially like even if you go back and you look at look, I don't expect young audiences to go back today. And watch original Star Trek and be able to get into it. You know they they, they have a very hard time. I'm with you. They grew sure. up n- not understand. They're not going to go back. But if you if you just watch Errand of Mercy and you look at the relationship that Kirk develops with Four. when Kirk as Barona is developing this relationship with Kor, look at that relationship and the way they talk to each other, how adult it is, and and at the end when when when. They find out when Kor finds out that the Organians have stopped the war. You know, he's in his in his villainy self, and then at the end, he's like, "You know what, though? It would have been glorious." You know, and, and you you there was more emotion and fun in that character in that after you've met him, and he's he is a thoughtful True. character. He's not a mustache twirling villain, and you know, the to me the 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 Klingons in in. Um, in discovery so far, and, and by the way, n- of course, none of them matter now because they're all right. fucking dead except Laurel. I mean, really, you're going to do that? That's not very good serialized storytelling. At least Ned Stark got to live the entire season before he got killed, and you didn't see it coming. 
I mean, it's 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 like the the ham fisted writing of, of Discovery. Yeah, I mean, it's like God. I'm man, with you. Really? But man, what is that? Go the on. thing is, I want it to sure. be good. I mean, I when I when I'm critical, I'm I'm critical out of anger, and the fact that you know, if I had eight million dollars, <laughs> I, I could make I I could make a better episode. As a matter of fact, if I had eight million dollars, I could probably make three episodes, of and that's per episode, and they would be budget. much more satisfying to an audience. And I know people would be like, oh, "You're arrogant. Who the fuck are you? You only work in these m- movies that no one's ever heard of." Well, yeah, you're right, <laughs> but that's only because I've had bad luck. You know, I don't have bad robot. I've had bad I hear you, luck, man. but um, I still am. I'm working away, and I'll prove myself. Oh yeah, no, but man. Um, fight's never over. Absolutely. No, what are you talking about? I'm looking forward to your uh, uh, Renee Taylor and uh, Ron. Uh, oh no, Joe Bologna. But right, yeah, yeah, man. Hey, you know, I'm really glad. And, and remind people of that movie, by the way, that's coming up. Well, you know, I've been I've been working for the last over a year now on because uh, it's been it's independent film and it stops and starts. But I've been working. I'm editing and I'm also a producer on uh, a low budget indie movie called Tango Shalom, which is a it's really interesting because when we started it, this, it was not some kind of a political statement, really. But now in our in Trump's America, where there's so much divisiveness and so much partisan bickering we've sort of made this movie that preaches religious tolerance but it's a it's a comedy and it's about a, a Hasidic rabbi that thinks he's heard the word of god and god has told him that he has to learn to dance the tango but being that he's a Hasidic rabbi and he's married and has kids and his wife doesn't know how to tango and he can't you know he can't touch another woman and he doesn't know what he's gonna do so he kind of goes off on a spiritual odyssey and he consults a a Catholic priest and a, a Muslim imam and a, 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 a um, Sikh mystic and, and to help him on his quest and, and uh, of learning how to dance the tango and finding a partner. And he ends up having through the course of this story in order to save his, his school and save his family, he has to end up going on, on a dance competition and hopefully win. <laughs> and in order to and it's 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 so funny because when I'm like it to me it's the it's the Hasidic spiritual quest dance comedy that you didn't know you needed <laughs> but you really do. Well, they're they're and, a wonderful um, team, and I'm so bummed that uh, that Bologna passed away. He was always one of my favorite actors. Yeah, he he did, and it's his performance in the film is great, and it's one of the last things you know he wrote. He co-wrote the script, and. Um, there's like uh, Lainey Kazan is in it. It's awesome. And Joe and Renee Lainey are in Kazan, it. Lainey Kazan, for people who don't know, the mom in my big fat Greek wedding, both movies, obviously. A million other great yeah, roles she, from the I mean, 60s moving forward. My favorite year, one of my fa- personal favorite uh, films of uh, you know the past, Richard Benjamin, the director of that. Mel Brooks, big part of that movie. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I mean that was all part of the, the, the Joe Bologna's Hollywood clan are all you know, they're all giants. And of course, yeah, Bologna, of course, yes, theater. part of my favorite year as well. Shame on me. Yeah, he was, and you know, he was in like Blame It on Rio. Yes. And, yeah. <laughs> and um, he, he had, I mean, Joe Bologna was a really interesting character because, you know, he uh, was nominated, him and Renee were nominated for an Academy Award for writing a, a film. Um, and they've won Emmys and Tonys, and, and Renee was obviously Fran Drescher's mom right, and of nanny. Right, yes. 
And so it's been a really it's been a really interesting project for me to work on because I've never uh, other than free enterprise, I've never really worked on a comedy and editing a comedy is is has been a lot of fun. And it's obviously low budget and there's a lot of challenges there, but it was all shot in New York City. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun, you know, and hope hopefully we'll get it done soon. I mean, it's there's been financing issues as we've gone along and post and. We're trying to get it finished, but I'd like to get it out because you know I, I'm working on a on a on a project. It's a vaguely science fiction medical thriller courtroom drama that deals with the future of reproductive rights. And I've wanted to make this movie for the better part of 25 years, and I wanted to make it after I made Free Enterprise. And everyone said that the subject matter—it's like no one's going to let you make this movie. Who's going to want to watch this movie? And people have told me it's a lifetime movie because. You know, it, it deals with a female because it deals with sure, reproductive sure. rights, and and I, you know, I want to make it. I'm I'm trying to get it get it financed right now, but I really want it. You know, I haven't directed a movie in almost 20 years. Now I seem like I'm I'm really bitter, but I'm just like you know what? I'm not I'm not bitter at all. I keep Good moving man. forward. I keep I get to do really cool shit. Like I'm I'm I've just finished. Uh, it launches next Tell week, me. but one of my oldest friends in the world. Uh, is a, a, a former Green Beret and an ER doctor. And he, he's, he's in Oregon. He practices in Oregon. And he's traveled all around the world teaching a crisis medicine course where he teaches people how to deliver care under fire. Wow. So if you're in an active shooter event like what happened in Las Vegas, this will teach you how to not only survive it, assuming you're going to get shot in the head, but how you can administer care under fire and save the life of the people around you wow and uh i it's it was a lecture series he taught this in afghanistan he taught it in iraq and he um asked me if i would come and basically film his lecture series and turn it into one of these master classes that are so popular online so that's what we've done and um we're going to launch it this week uh, and the first class, the day-long class, the day-long master class, is about eight hours of incredibly compelling lecture. I mean, there's lectures on hemorrhage control, and I mean, you learn about the history of ballistics and and everything from Waco to surviving toe popper mines. I mean, it's it's wow. incredible. And Mike is front and center teaching this course. And it's something that I had never done before, and he asked me to do it. And I think it's actually one of the most important things, you know, I've ever done. And I ended up directing the lecture series. I was the director of photography. I produced it. I edited it. And we shot it up in Oregon. And we shot it uh, not just lectures, but we went out into the field with local SWAT and law enforcement and shot scenarios of building assaults and and, – showing what happens when people lose limbs out in the field and how do you you care under fire and it's called tactical casualty care and uh if you look up crisis medicine online you'll find the website which is a very cool website but the course is a little pricey but if you uh are a gun uh, owner or or are ever using guns or you you ever travel, or you ever find yourself, you never know when you're going to find yourself in an active, violent sure. situation. But this, this lecture series will help save not only your life, but others. And it's fascinating to watch. And I've been, 
as I said, I've, the whole lecture series has three different ones, but the day-long course, the introduction to tactical casualty care, which is incredibly compelling, especially if you're if you like if you at all are aficionado of the military or history or of law enforcement or weapons of any kind. Uh, it's really interesting stuff. So that's something I've been doing in addition to working on this movie. And in addition to being on all the Collider shows, I've been working on this tactical casualty care masterclass all summer. And it's going to be great. I started in June and it'll be great to launch in November. And, you know, it's really nice to work on a project where the person that you're working for, uh, who's in charge of all the money, can get a project made uh, quickly. Yeah, that's impressive. Uh, As opposed... As opposed to continually uh, continuing to talk about a project that is years in the making that you never see, that. Jesus. Well, and I think last last time you were on, you might have mentioned uh, this project. I'm not sure because it sounded vaguely familiar. It's a, it sounds incredibly impressive. And again, I'm glad you're moving forward and, and getting these kind of opportunities. And this is the different, you know, the changing media world. And so suddenly there are avenues to apply your skills in a way that you know wasn't available before and it's very cool that you're you know like you said the master class kind of uh presentation is new and and innovative and that's cool that you're part of it oh and it's also you know it's also very lucrative and i own a piece of the obviously i own a piece of this this cool. show and and again it's it's the kind of thing that one of the things that's been frustrating for me is i'm sort of a, a one-man band i mean you know i've self-published a comic book that i'm gonna, i'm going to be launching a kickstarter hey, let me know. for absolutely man it has cool yeah, it hasn't been available in, in, in 12 years. It's called Living in Infamy. Uh, it was once optioned by Skydance that ironically produces the I Star Trek I know movies. This. Wait a minute. That's Ben uh, Rabb's uh, comic book. Am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Ben Rabb and Derek Hughes, who, who are now – they're on a new show. They're, they're um, writer-producers on an upcoming show called Black Ninja. Hilarious. Uh, or no, Black, pardon me, Black, Black Samurai. Samurai. Okay. Excuse me. It's called they Black were, Samurai. They were also uh, uh, CW um, – DC comic. Yeah, I was going to say I, I know I've seen yeah, their names on on credits, and I remember when Ben Ben was a Green Lantern writer back in the day. Am I right? Yep. Yep. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. And Ben and Derek created this series, and they sure. wrote it, and I uh, published it. And it, it's been out of print for a long time. And and but Skydance, it was that was another another thing that they were they had optioned Living in Infamy, and we developed the pilot script, and we were very close to it going into production. And as so often happens. They just decided, no, nope, not for us. We're going to go make Altered Carbon wow. instead. Well, typical. But I'm still active, actively shopping, living in infamy around. But, you know, it's it's. Um, I'm, I'm going to kickstart it because I, I was never able to publish the graphic novel, you know, because I financed the whole thing. And then 2008 happened and everyone lost yeah. a lot of money and the economy was wrecked. But what was interesting, the last thing I paid for on Living in Infamy was Matt Wagner did a cover for me. He did the cover for the graphic novel, Matt Wagner of Grendel and Mage yeah, fame. Good One of my the podcast. Go on. Oh yeah, he's he Mitch. did this great piece of art. <laughs> it was funny, and he, he was great. And and uh, I never got to use it, and I have it, so it's going to finally see cool. the light of day. And there's lots of other stuff that we're going to put into it. I'm hoping actually to launch the Kickstarter in December because I found out a cool if you if you the first week of the podcast or the first week of the um, Kickstarter campaign. If you, I think it'll be at the twenty-five dollar level. You'll get a postcard if you buy it in the first week by before December eleventh. 
uh, you'll get a postcard that we will deliver to uh, your whoever you want to give it to. If it's a gift or you can keep it for yourself uh, that you can give it to as a gift that in March of, of 2018, you'll be receiving the Living in Infamy graphic novel. That quickly. That's amazing. So it's great. Well, it's great because we're basically rejiggering and re- repackaging the, the first four issues into a graphic novel, which has never been done. But it's it's we have all the material already, so it's not you don't have to wait you. for it. Wow. Um, we just have to wait for the we have to do some uh, redesigning of the book itself, and then uh, just printing it. And I'm hoping to do a soft cover and a hard cover, which it's interesting because originally there was a graphic novel in Spain. It was published in Spain, but never anywhere else in the world. So there's a Spanish version of it too, which is which Absolutely, is kind of cool. Man. That's awesome. But yeah, that's yeah, that's just another thing. So, and I'm also writing a children's book with my girlfriend. Yeah. Um, that she's a fine artist and she's painting it, and it's an idea. It's, it's kind of funny. I came up with this idea when I was married, but um, it's called the Gumball Invasion, <laughs> and it's about a little girl and her cat who are the only people that understand that Earth is is being invaded by these alien creatures, these very interesting and unique alien creatures. And they are the only people that, that stand in uh, that stand between humanity and this this horrible invasion of the Earth. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's so it's the story of a uh, and the, and the, the the story it's a children's book, but it rotates around to all the different cast of characters. So the main, the little girl Sally and her cat Bartholomew. Uh, so you hear like what Bar- Bartholomew <laughs> is thinking, and he he he's a cat that that you know he doesn't particularly like being a cat, and he's kind of depressed because he doesn't know which life he's on. He doesn't know if it's his like third <laughs> life or, or his, his nice, sixth yeah, or... life. So he doesn't know how long or he seven. has to keep yes, being a yes. cat. Yeah, he just doesn't know, and so he's kind of annoyed, and then. And then, sort of, when he finds out there's this alien invasion, it sort of gives him a reason to live, <laughs> and 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 then he, he comes to terms with the fact that he, it might be his ninth life. So, the aliens, if they kill him, it's over. And so he's he's dealing with those issues. Um, but yeah, so the gumball invasion, look out for that. I don't know if I'll kickstart that. I don't know what I'm gonna do with that, but I've wanted to tell that story for a Hilarious. very long time. That's awesome, man. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so you know, and, and then you work on the movies, and you're, and I'm trying to get this other movie that I've wanted to direct for a long time off the ground. And you know, regardless, I will still tune into Discovery, <laughs> and, I, and I want it. I want Star Trek writers. I know I've been mean, and I've I've said very disparaging things, and used motherfucker a lot, and, and thrown it in your direction. But you should know that when the original Star Trek aired back in the '60s, it was a very tumultuous time. Jack Kennedy had been killed. Bobby Kennedy had been killed. Civil rights. The riots, racial tensions, we were mired in the Vietnam War. Life uh, was pretty bleak, but Star Trek's aspirational and optimistic vision of the future with all humanity banding together and and conquering the final frontier and and, and bringing the values of of Camelot to space uh, was very important. And I'm I'm really hoping that Star Trek Discovery uh, will do that again. I mean, whether whether nuclear weapons are going to be flying from North Korea, whether, you know, Iran and Yemen are going to drag Saudi Arabia into a war, uh, our American democracy is being unraveled by bickering and and, and horrible partisanship and and 
the fact that Betsy DeVos is the Secretary of Education and, and things that are going on like that, we need the aspirational, optimistic Roddenberry future now more than ever. Agreed. And, and, and to watch, you know, Harry Mudd uh, and his Lorca murder montage, that's not the Star Trek we really need. And it's not the Star Trek. And this isn't because I get off my lawn and I'm old. It's just that that its core, what Star Trek really is, is about the greatness of, of, of the reach of humanity. And, and that's what it was about. It was about the greatness of mankind and, and, and humankind and where we can hope to go in the future. And that's what Star Trek should be about. That's, that's its baseline. So, you know, murder montages and, and, and murderous Klingons, and all, that's not, it's not really what Star Trek is about. And I really don't think you're going to capture a long-term audience uh, if you don't do that. Agreed. No, man. Hey, you know, and as, as I always say, I always love having you on because, uh, as, as we said maybe at the start of this thing, critical thinking. And you always come from a baseline of, you know, an informed opinion. So you right. can disagree with Rob's opinions, but I always know it's coming from, you know, obviously a passionate place and a good place. And I, I love the minutia we get into when we have these discussions and I'm happy to share my platform with you. And hear this. And again, it's uh, it, it's great to pick your brain on these subjects. And um, you know, yeah, when when the back six uh, finally do air, you can come back for that. And uh, you know, also the next next time we chat, we don't have to talk Star Trek, and we can talk about a lot of the other things we have talked about in our previous word balloon conversations in terms of you know just good science fiction storytelling. And uh, you know, there's there's a body of science fiction work that again. Um, I really do hope that younger people will eventually explore and, and Rob and I coming from the same age group, we were used to the five channel television world, the pre cable and pre satellite world, and certainly the pre internet yeah. world where we really did get to see this stuff and appreciate it uh, for what it was. And yeah, you know, so it's, it's always fun. And plus again, your, your work on uh, the special features on the various DVDs that you've worked at, you got a ton of stories, man. So it's always, yeah, well, a, it's always a pleasure to share. You know, and also, if I could encourage people to read, you know, there's so <laughs> much there, 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 there's so much great science fiction out there. You know, remember yeah, Game of, Game of Thrones was, is based on a, a series of novels, and 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 Denis Villeneuve is going to do Dune. But you know, there's a there's a there's a science fiction novel I, I recently read. It was it's a decade old now. It was is by Peter Watts. It is by Peter Watts, and it's a book called Blind Sight. Blind sight. Okay. And um, uh, it it's cutting edge sci-fi. It's really dense. It's 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 sort of a first contact story, but it's set about fifty years from now. And I'm I'm completely obsessed by this book. And I'm obsessed by all the like all great science fiction, all the great concepts in it, and all the great the heady looks at our our, our civilization where it might be going. It's I, I highly recommend it. Cool. Blind so sight. seek that out. Absolutely, man. No, cool. Always, dude. Always a pleasure. You know, I mean, and and really, we could have a pure comic book story or uh, chat at some point as well. And and really, if <clears throat> I'm telling you now, both, I mean, if you feel that you've given enough of a commercial for living in infamy when it's when it's time for the Kickstarter, that's fine. Or you can come back in a couple of weeks, and we could have a pure comic book conversation because I know you're a huge comic book fan. Oh, and by the way, I mean, I've got, I, I can't wait to read Doomsday Clock. Me too, man. But, but I, 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 I have my knives sharpened on one side, and then 
and then and then of course my 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 joyful side on the other hoping it's great because you know i'm a i'm a fan of jeff johns's work and watchman is one of my favorite things in the world so yeah it's really it's really cool we got last jedi coming out i can't wait for that i'm seeing justice league thursday i can't believe there's a justice league movie oh, shit. There's, okay. there's so there's so much great stuff in the world to love all over the place, and and, uh, I, and as I'm sure you're fascinated as well, uh, Brian Bendis uh, moving to DC is going to be very interesting. I, you know what, bring it on! I can't wait to read his take on just about every DC character. I hear you, man. Well, th- thanks for seriously. As always, I always feel bad, and obviously, you're you were obviously willing to go on the journey with me. It's so funny when I talk to Jason sometimes, Jason Inman. I was like, oh, Jason, I'm sure I'm take, taking a little too longer than you thought. So I hope I'm not keeping you from your girlfriend and uh, whatever you had planned for late night on uh, this Tuesday night that we're talking. But uh, no, it's always great to talk to you, and uh, happy to have you back anytime. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's it's I love being on your show. I I love it because you just let me babble on. <laughs> And I feel I feel I got myself in less trouble this episode than probably in other episodes, except with the Discovery Writers Room. But I was already in trouble with CBS, so that's okay. Yeah, I figured as much. No problem, man. Thanks again. All right, man. There you go, Rob Meyer Burnett. He's got a lot uh, of projects coming up. Living in infamy, man. That's awesome. I remember when that was uh, first out, and it's a very fun concept. Uh, Super villains and a Don, you know, in a witness protection uh, neighborhood. That's what infamy is. The town. And uh, it's a very cute concept, and I, I'm really looking forward to uh, that uh, Kickstarter. And uh, Ben Rabb, I'm always happy to help. And uh, same with Rob Meyer Burnett. Hope you enjoyed today's conversation today. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in what everybody thinks of uh, what's going on in uh, Star Trek Discovery. So I have a feeling that uh, the conversation may uh, pick up again, maybe when uh, the new episodes happen, even probably before then, sometime in December. But uh, it was great talking about it today on Word Balloon. Hope you enjoyed it. Brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your support. Uh, if you want to subscribe to Word Balloon, it's uh, patreon.com slash wordballoon, or you can click on the ad on the front page of wordballoon.com. Thanks again for listening. Uh, another episode coming up in just a couple days here. Sorry about that. Uh, I know we went longer than a week uh, between episodes, but... Um, combination of extra radio hours which is good because it's more income and also uh, man i've been sick since um halloween i don't know what the deal is every year at least once or twice a year i'll catch a bug that'll stay with me for about four weeks you can hear my voice giving now so i'm doing my best keeping all that at bay but uh promise there is uh, more great word balloon coming in the days ahead uh as i say i know i keep i keep promising bendis tapes is coming Brian and I are just trying to find that day. He was at the uh, Justice League premiere, so he'll have even more stories to talk about when we finally catch up and do that Bendis tapes. That is uh, within days, I promise. But until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2017.